0: Hi, this is Russ Baden with Roleplay Public Radio, and we are. Uh, I'm interviewing today uh, Adam Scott Glancy, the publisher, editor, and man behind Pagan Publishing, uh, and uh, one of the authors of Delta Green. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, Targets of Opportunity, uh, the newest Delta Green book, a uh, massive tome of uh, occult goodness. Uh, it is fairly massive. And it's over 320 pages. It is... Uh, What, 200,000, 300,000 words?
1: It's something in that order. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's, it's in the order of 200,000 words, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Somehow I remember the last number being about 180,000 words. Uh, That's what it came out to be. But uh, not sitting in front of the word count at the moment, I can't really say for sure.
0: Okay, so uh, what is Targets of Opportunity? Uh, give us a basic sort of introduction to this uh, book and why okay, and, when, and why every Delta Green fan should uh, go and get it. <laughs>
1: well, you know, my uh, gut reaction to why every Delta Green fan should go and get one is so that uh, I can, you know, pay my rent. That would be my first reason why I think every Delta <laughs> Green player needs to get one. But, you um, know, Targets of Opportunity, uh, you know, the original concept uh, – was sort of – there were two sort of two things going on. I mean, Shane Ivey over at Arc Dream was looking for the next thing to do, and um, uh, Dennis had started working on um, his uh, Black Cot Island material, which is a rather hefty chapter in the book. Uh, I was looking for a home for it, and, and I had previously been kicking around an idea of either of a scenario anthology or just an anthology of uh, new Delta Green bad guys, um, uh, opposition groups for the players to deal with, uh, that I had tentatively been, you know, been kicking around the name, uh, targets of opportunity. The idea being is that these are, uh, new targets for Delta green to take on. Um, and that was, you know, the basic idea behind, uh, uh where the, where it evolved from. Um, at least that's how it started. Now, later in the process, uh, while well, we were, um, uh, putting this thing together we came up with uh, we had basically four main groups that we were uh, working on um, we had uh, the uh, well we had Dennis's material for Black Caught Island which is a, a, a deep one colony scenario set uh, in southern Alaska uh, amongst uh, the Tlingit uh, descendants of the Tlingit Indians um, Uh, I had two sections that I was trying to develop. One was the Disciples of the Worm, which was a cult of immortal sorcerers uh, living with symbiotic uh, alien organisms inside them to prolong their lives. And um, there was uh, the Damont clan, which was a clan of ghouls living in New Orleans, not living by uh, standard ghoul um, rules and procedures. Uh, They're sort of heretical ghouls. Um, that was something I developed a long time ago for um, uh, some stuff we had done. When we were working on a Delta Green um, uh, computer game, um, and, but we'd never found a home for the DeMont clan. We just sort of developed this uh, them as a, an idea for, as part of a, uh, an advertising campaign. Uh, anyways, uh, there was also um, Warren Banks, who is one of the musicians from The Darkest of the Hillside Thickets. Um, are you familiar with them, Ross?
0: Yes, they are a uh, Lovecraftian-themed um, metal or rock band. I'm not sure which genre they fit
1: A little, a little punker than that. It's, okay. a hard to, it's a little hard to nail them down. But uh, yes, uh, that's exactly who that is. And um, they, uh, uh, Warren had come up with this idea a long time ago, and they threw it at us. And we, again, we had no home for it when it first came out. Um, uh, it was sort of a, 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 a new Delta Green idea, a new Delta Green-ish organization, a, uh, a an organization that the players could actually play in set in Canada. And um, I'd always liked his material. I'd always liked his idea because he seemed to um, take a real serious uh, view of um, starting with, the source material and working outwards from it in order to create his organization. Over the years we had received, you know, um, dozens of, of fan created, um, uh, Delta green like organizations, uh, so that, you know, people in Israel or Ireland or, or wherever could be Delta green style agents, but not have to play Americans because you know, the complaint was always that Delta green was too American centric. Um, you know, I clearly see my mistake there as an American author uh, who uh, who's lived in the States all of my life. I should have written uh, an organization uh, based in um, Andorra, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, or perhaps, uh, you know, Luxembourg, um, a place that I have never visited, know nothing about. I am sure that my, you know, ignorance would not have shown through <laughs> while crafting something set in those places. Um we were very lucky when we did Pisces that we'd already developed a pretty good uh, British fan base. And when we did Pisces, we shopped it around to as many uh, Brits as we possibly could to say, okay, what's wrong with this? And boy, they told us (laughs) uh, the list of things that we got wrong because we're stupid colonials who don't know anything about England is, was was pretty deep. But um, in any case, uh, uh, you know, we, um,
0: well, it's it's interesting you you bring that up because Delta Green, it, I mean, it is a very American game in the sense that the mythology behind it, Majestic Twelve and Roswell and uh, yeah. all of this, the conspiracy theories. I mean, that's a very you know uh, American-based U.S. government you know kind of centered uh, myth so or stories. Yeah. So like you can't really, there, I, I mean, you would have to, it wouldn't work anywhere else. So, but I mean, cool. I could see the the point. You know, overseas players you know, know as much about America as you know about, you know, the UK. So, yeah, uh.
1: yeah, exactly. And, you know, so um, I think we are just, I, I can't really imagine uh, how we could have, um, you know, uh, done it as anything else. I mean, the, 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 the you know, the, the Lovecraftian material is set in America for the most part then the conspiracy material was was our conspiracy material. It's Americans, America's conspiracy, you know, love mm-hmm. of conspiracy theory. Um, the idea that somehow we were going to, you know, the, I, I think we did okay with um, – uh, the material for Pisces, I mean, and and it really was, that really was a love letter to England for all the great conspiracy uh, movies and uh, science fiction and horror that they had produced over the years, uh, particularly things like the, the Quatermass movies. Mm, yep. There's a lot of homages in there to Quatermass 2 um, and uh, Quatermass in the pit. Um, uh, there's also a lot of homages in there to The Prisoner, um, the Patrick McGowan a cult classic from the 60s, uh, and a number, a fair number of other uh, British sort of uh, spy thrillers, films or from the 70s and 80s. Um, but anyways, uh, uh, you know, uh, we did it okay, uh, and uh, grafting it on, and it was always just a pleasure to note that the, that the, the Brits thought we did okay, um, that we didn't do anything terribly embarrassing. And certainly the, the material that came out of um, the Black Seal magazine uh, for its three issues, that dealt with Pisces. It was an English-based magazine. They they did a lot of Pisces material, and the material that they wrote is stuff that um, normally I, I have a tendency to wince when I see fans write material based on our stuff, um, uh, because you know again the the classic joke is uh, you know suddenly Delta Green has a hover fortress from. You know, with F sixteens and, and stuff and, and
0: Hella carriers uh, from Shield, yeah. you know. Yes,
1: exactly. Um exactly. And and you know, these guys wrote stuff that was just incredibly understated and uh, stayed loyal to the material without, you know, just parroting it back, but it came up with new stuff and uh, they just did a really good job. All the authors on the, that did a really good job. But back to back to targets. Um, so we had these things we didn't really have homes, and um, so we started putting them together. And we, you know, so between Gla- Black Cod and Epic, which was the the Canadian sort of Delta Green agency. And I'll you know speak more specifically on that later if you want. But uh, Disciples of the Worms and the Demont Clan. We had um, you know a pretty good sized book, but we felt it needed more and we were, I, this is, again, this is my take on it. Certainly it's my attitude. Uh, we were lazy. And I say that because, um, to write up a scenario for each one of these things takes a great deal of work. Um, not only do you have to write up the scenario, but you have to run it. You have to get a group of people together to run it. Uh, and then you have to make corrections based on, you know, the play test. That takes a lot of time. And, you know, Shane did not want to. uh, Just, you know, the timetable was such that if we had tried to um, make scenarios for each one of these things, uh, I just think it would have pushed the project back uh, another year. Um, And uh, we'd already, you know, because we'd already taken pre orders on it, I just, nobody wanted to do that. Everyone wanted to get this thing. To the customers as quick as possible so last gen con we decided we were going to put the cult of transcendence into it and the cult of transcendence is some material that has been kicking around pagan publishing since before delta green even existed it was originally written before there was such a thing as delta green uh by it was written by greg Stolzi, who has written mountains of material for the role-playing game history. And I don't even know if I should even rattle off all of his credits with, you know,
0: well, he's written for white wolf. He's done a yeah. lot of, he, he's the one who came up with the ransom model, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty large bibliography here.
1: Yeah. So he originally came up with it. And, uh, when he, when he had it, it was very over the top of the first, the first draft. And, um, over the years, various people took cracks at it. I, I, you know, we massaged it a little bit. Um, we asked Ken Height to come in and crack together a kind of prehistory for it because um, we didn't really have that. Um, once Delta Green was out, one of the things that um, we sort of realized that we liked was that uh, was putting in some background about how the organization got from, you know, how it came to be what it is today you know, sort of organizational histories of right. cults and organizations seems to provide the keepers with some background that allows them to understand the workings of the group a little better. And then, you know, use it as a, as, as a springboard a little better, uh, because they have some idea of where it came from and how it got here. Uh, so we decided we need some more history for cult of transcendence. It was originally just presented as here it is. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken came and he gave a the background. He, he's the one who started coming up with this idea that, um, it's the gang that couldn't shoot straight uh, that you know, Cult of Transcendence has, you know, um, uh, tried to be the Illuminati, tried to run the world from the shadows. And trying to run the world from the shadows has led to one disaster after another because there's just a limit to how much you can control before it all falls apart. Um, and we, I, I kind of like that, and I, I kind of picked that up and wanted to push that even further so that um, uh, Cult of Transcendence becomes uh, this sort of – I think uh, uh, Shane Ivey called it a a Mythos Ponzi scheme, uh, where um, it's uh, uh, ultimately, it is just a big headless monster. There's nobody in charge of it. It's this big crashing, thrashing thing that uh, doesn't have a purpose, doesn't have a a mission statement, um, uh, is just this sort of engine, uh, for, uh, of, you know, sort of undirected destruction, uh, in a lot of ways that, uh, I kind of liked because it, it sort of emphasized the whole, you know, nature of the Lovecraftian universe and, yeah. um, the big plan that you join the cult and then you get to transcend your humanity and be as a great old one, you know, uh, the ultimate reward for all of your, centuries of service to the cult is that you get to transmogrify into one of the pipers that dances around the court of Azathoth, you know, forever and ever, you know, whirling and spinning. Um, Yes, you have the powers of the God, but all the powers, the powers that you have are all going to be used to, you know, play a happy tune for Azathoth um that's your award congratulations you know, you are now immortal and have the powers of a god
0: and, and that's the so, best case result i remember yes that
1: was the best case result for being a member of the cult of transcendence and i just thought that was you know marvelously you know nihilistic and pointless and um you know uh, so we we had cult of transcendence sitting around we'd been we'd been poking at it and poking at it and uh, we had a few scenarios that were were built for it but they were they were built in the 90s and a lot of the material that ken uh, had um let's see i think he had a he one of them showed up in shards of darkness i think it was called it was a little uh, uh small press run publication uh that came out a few years earlier he published one of his uh scenarios that he wrote for um Cult of Transcendence called Numbers and the Beast Um, We could have republished it We could have published some other stuff that had been written for Cult of Transcendence But really um, We kind of came to the conclusion that uh, If we throw Cult of Transcendence In there, it goes from being A little too small to a little too big
0: Yeah
1: um, we have no room for scenarios, and people are going, well, "Where are the scenarios?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know. We're, you know, would you want to pay $90 for the book? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's 319, 320 pages as is. You know, I, I don't think there's room for anything else. Uh, we're done.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: so we uh, we decided to graft Cult of Transcendence onto it, so that we could finally move Cult of Transcendence out of the vaporware department and uh finally bring that uh, chapter uh up to a close um and uh you know i guess why does every delta every you know red blooded delta green fan need to own this book um well you know you need to own it because uh it's just uh some of our better work uh it, it's um you know the uh, uh i'm very proud of the material that i published the um the Demont Clan, the Disciples of the Worm. Um, I'm very happy with uh, Dennis's Black Cod Island. Um, and uh, I love that somebody's uh, complaint about Black Cod Island was was that uh, they don't seem to have any, you know, goals on Black Cod Island. You know, where's the threat to the world? They're just on their little island doing their, you know, evil stuff on their island. I'm like, yeah, well, they're still doing human sacrifices and they're still inhuman monsters, conforming with the mythos, and they're still, you know, Breeding generations of of, uh, hybrid cultists, and you know, you know, I I guess the the few human sacrifices a year just wasn't enough to get those Delta Green agents (laughs) out of bed. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Considering what the what the the threat is, I mean, Black Hut Island's an extremely hard nut to crack.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, you know, and the your, the upside is is that you eliminate a mythos community that's essentially keeping to itself. And uh, uh, apart from its, uh, again, I don't remember how many homicides a year, but it's really their numbers were like uh, three or four a year. You know, it was they, that was it um, for the whole island and for the whole area. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, I I the idea that you know, well, it's not it's not severe enough since they're not you know planning to. Draw Cthuga down to the middle of Detroit. I guess we're you know what we'll find something better to do with our time. Maybe I mean Blackout Islands is kind of place that you could let sit. Um, the players can come back to it again and again, poking around the edges at it until they um, can come up with an effective uh, battle plan to take it out. Uh, but it's, it's it's so it doesn't have a it doesn't have a, a expiration date or it's not hooked up to an egg timer. Right. But um, a lot of the stuff. Even the disciples of the worm don't really, uh, I mean, um, don't have any world spanning plans of world domination. Uh, uh, Neither do the uh, DeMont clan. If you left the DeMont clan alone in New Orleans, they'd just eat corpses.
0: Right. You know, um, they'd kill some people, but not, you know,
1: only because they found out they were eating corpses. I mean, what they want is their privacy. Um, as, a, as a as a ghoul clan, they're heretical in that they don't, you know, they have no, you know, when Katrina shows up, Katrina, the, the hurricane in Katrina does not attack New Orleans because the Demont clan decides we really need a big buffet of corpses this week. We need a whole lot of dead bodies. So let's have a hurricane hit the city. No, they're minding their own business when the hurricane shows up and screws up their houses and their places, you know, and 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 screws up their operations and drowns a few ghouls in the process. Um, they're not, uh, you know, they're not. They have no big plans, um, and I, you know, and I don't. I don't know. Some people, you know, the Cult of Transcendence has plenty of big plans. If you want big plans, um, each and every acolyte and um, and bishop of the cult has his own agenda um, that is sort of separate from, that can be separate from the the main goals of the cult, or the or the complete lack of goals of the cult. Perhaps I should say. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, why should you buy this? Because you will be entertained. That's why, because you will get your money's worth out of it. You know, this product will, uh, will, will you know, be, if it's, you know, a, it'll be a good read and then B, it'll be entertaining to inflict everything on your players. Uh, the only downside is that no, there are no scenarios. So it's going to be up to you, the, the keeper to, um, come up with your own, um, come up with your own scenarios based on the source material um, we are working on now another book uh, I mean, it's, it's way in the planning stages for Delta Green where we will do a scenario anthology where it'll just be a whole big pile of scenarios of, of midland small size scenarios um, yeah, for keepers you know uh, but uh, there just simply wasn't enough room for it in this book
0: Right. Well, one thing I I find I've always really uh, found interesting about Delta Green is that there's this emphasis on uh, that Delta Green, the players, they don't know, they're kept in the dark about so much. So uh, the fact that they don't know, you know, they. To them, Black Hot Island or the Disciples of Worm Demont Clan are major threats because they don't know what they're up to. I mean, they, that well, yeah, like... there is that.
1: I mean, you know, um, yeah. you present it to the players, they're not going to know that they, all these guys want to do is kill a few people on a full moon every year to sacrifice them to uh, their dagon stand-in, or that you know they're just going to. Some people may die because the Disciples of the Worm are looking for alchemical. Um, Ingredients, then it can only come from live human pineal glands, or uh, because the DeMont clan killed some nosy reporter who wanted to know what was, you know, what was going on at that crematorium. Why, you know, and it, 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 you know why there was there was less ash coming out of the crematorium <laughs> than was supposed to. Um, you know, uh, the players aren't going to know what their agenda is until they've, you know, until they they get into it. And, you know, the, 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 you're right, it is kind of a, a uh, for, for, some, for the keeper to read it and go, well, I don't know where my Delta Greens agent's motivation is. Is like, dude, it's a mystery. Yeah. You know, they're not going to know any of this stuff. They have to get into it before they're going to realize what their situation is or what the, what the scenario is. And they may never. I mean, it may, you know, they, they may get done, wow, we sure showed those, you know, we sure showed those ghouls down in New Orleans. Oh, what did you achieve? You know, exactly.
0: Um, well, they're ghouls. They were eating people. What else do you want us from us? You know? Exactly.
1: Well, yeah. that that is certainly the you know, perfectly valid, you know, Lovecraftian answer is like, you know, they are gross and must be destroyed. <laughs> um, and, you know, honestly, the, uh, the many of the ghouls, and, and the many of the ghouls, even though they're all bouncing around zero sand points. Their nuts comes out in different, you know, sort of ways. Um, some are, uh, some are uh, sadistic and uh, megalomaniacal. Uh, some are just have sort of deranged uh, attitudes uh, that, you know, um, my, uh, there was one ghoul, this uh, one uh, female ghoul who I believe was, uh, had been a flapper in the 20s in a previous life. Or before she had turned, who, um, yeah, you know, whose attitude about uh, being uh, being a uh, a cannibal or being a ghoul and eating dead flesh was that, you know, she couldn't understand why people would object to this. I mean, the ghouls have that overall goal to sort of like, you know, the with that we took from uh, Realm of Shadows that uh, that they want to push, they want to change human society over. Over, over years, decades, centuries, to be more and more liberal until their way of life is no longer seen as aberrant. It's a lifestyle choice, you know, if you want, right. you know. Uh, two con- why can't two consenting adults engage in necrophagy? You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, her attitude was like, well, I don't know why you're upset. I mean, I mean, uh, someone who's as nice and personable and bright and, you know, pretty and charming as me could eat you, or you could be eaten by bacteria. What you're saying is that you'd rather you prefer bacteria over me, and I find that terribly, terribly insulting. <laughs> you know, I'm just a, I'm just it just hurts that you would say that, and I thought, well, that's that's a good zero sanity re- response. <laughs> <You> <laughs> um, a little, yeah. But yeah, um, but, uh, uh, yeah they're, you're not going to know what these guys are up to until you get into them, and they each one of them has got enough shades. Of uh black and more black, <laughs> <laughs> so that um they're just not uh, there's a mon- none of them are monolithic organizations, Was one of the things we're really trying to push and that we've always tried to push is that right these are not I mean, perfect if- adversaries these are yeah. flawed yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, otherwise, how are you gonna beat them for one thing um, yeah. that that helps if they've got flaws that you can you know you can get the thin end of the wedge into and manage to uh, uh, pry a victory out of it
0: right. right? I mean, even Majestic Twelve, that with for all, for all their resources, they are you know woefully ignorant of what's going on. Or
1: completely methods. wrong. Yeah. yeah, they're completely wrong, and they're fighting over stuff that's not even real. Right. You know. Um,
0: so let me talk a little more about uh, M Epic, since that's something that we haven't uh, you, you, you know you mentioned. But like, uh, it's an option for players who want to you know play in Canada. So what are um, obviously, uh, Ithaca, the, the Windwalker, I, I've, I've read, I haven't read the entire chapter yet, but I have read, I know the, the cult of Ithaca, the Windwalker sort of, uh, plays a part in it, but tell us a little more about him Epic.
1: Okay. Well, when we came up with our Delta green comes out of, I mean, the sort of the, it's a combination of two things. Delta green set it off as the organization when we conceived it, it was a combination of the 1928 post Insmith raid knowledge that, okay, it's real. supernatural's real, or at least, you know, monster sea creatures are real. Uh, and then uh, sort of the World War II OSS, uh, uh, the Nazis are going to try and use the mythos to aid their failing war effort. So we have to oppose them. So we had this idea that uh, we would, it would, it would sort of be born out of that. And Delta Green kind of represents the the America that uh, saved the world in World War II. And Majestic 12 uh, sort of represents the America, the, the the superpower America that controls the world, whether you like it or not, you know, um, uh, is that is that is that America that everyone seems to be afraid of, you right. know, post-World War II. Uh, we have the bomb. We're not afraid to use it. You know, we, we overthrow governments. We,
0: the military-industrial complex. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so um, – when we came up with, you know, so we we we, we did Pisces and uh, uh, GRUSV eight, and we wanted to sort of, and the idea was that okay, if if everybody got their mythos, oh,
0: and uh, go ahead, uh, GRUSV eight, that's the Russian,
1: uh, that's the Soviet Russian. era yeah. um, uh, mythos or uh, investigating organization. The idea being that um, if everybody got their uh, their mythos baby steps uh, during World War II because the Nazis were using it. And so it was sort of a counter Nazi reaction. Uh, then, you know, it would be the, the only people who would have a mythos aware agency would be groups that uh, had contact with the Nazis during World War II. Uh, that's just the, the Soviet Union, the British and us uh, with the free, with the French playing such a, a second banana um, uh, uh, role and, um, uh, in, this, in, the, in the conflict, uh, that uh, we, we sort of wrote them off um, uh, as being able to have a, a an agency that would have had contact with the mythos. It would have been British intelligence, uh, the Soviet intelligence agencies, and the American intelligence agencies. So um, that was sort of our, you know, those, and each one of those agencies sort of represent, you know, um, the tropes, the fictional tropes about those societies, you know, um, uh, for, you know, the Soviet one. uh, They're still official, uh, unlike Delta Green, but they're completely bankrupt. You know, they they have no money, no facilities left. Um, They're barely surviving in that sort of 90s, uh, you know, post-Cold War uh, Soviet wreckage. Things may have changed considerably now that somebody like Vladimir Putin is in, but, you know, again, changes like that are the sort of thing that I hope Uh, individual keepers will come up with in their own games uh, rather than you know wait around for us to tell them what happened and pisces represented that sort of british line of fiction where the british always seem to be far more afraid of their intelligence services than they are of terrorists or you know um foreign spies or whatever i mean from le carré to um lynn deaton and uh Films like uh, Edge of Darkness and mm, uh, Defensive right, right. Realm and uh, things like that. Um, so we sort of played on the British paranoia of the enemy within with uh, with Pisces. And well, okay, we get to we get to Canada, and um, um, you know, Warren Banks being a Canadian helps considerably. But it's tough coming up with the Canadian zeitgeist. Um, they they don't have one. They're, they're, <laughs> the, the Canadian zeitgeist it seems to be, you know. Uh, you know, okay, sit down, hey, have a beer, and, you know, maybe some back bacon. Um, that's what we think it is And down in Downing America. We think the Canadian cast right. is Doug and Bob McKenzie. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, okay, what are we going to do with this? Um, and Warren went with a um, – he went and took uh, the earliest stories about Ithaca. Uh, you're called, you're saying Ithaca. I always pronounce it Ithaca. Ithaca, um, yeah.
0: Tomatoes, but, tomato, tomato, uh, yeah.
1: Uh, he went and found some of the earliest stories by, um, uh, shoot, uh, August Durlith and some others, and I think even some Brian Lumley ones and found that the earliest stories about Athaka, cause he was just looking into stories that were set in Canada. Um, the earliest stories were written, uh, in the form of letters and journals by our, um, by RCMP, you know, Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigators, who were poking around and found these uh, cults and tried to report on them and then disappeared, you know, and that's like a report from his superior saying, you No, know, you, know, uh, you know, Mountie, you know, Mounty Bob disappeared and this is his last report, you know. And so he thought, okay, okay, well, if if Innsmouth, you know, is uh is proves that the US Navy and the federal government knows about deep ones, then um, why can't uh, the, the Mounties, as an organization, be aware of athakwa And that was sort of the, the, the genesis for it was, okay, if the Mounties are aware of it, you know, um, where do we go from there? And he came up with this rather, you know, it's a, it's a stop and start history of the organization because there's a problem and the Mounties deal with it and then the problem goes away and then they sort of, the organization doesn't stay permanent. You know, it it sort of breaks up because, well, the problem's going away and it'll never be back again, so everybody who was part of that can go back to their regular duties. And, you know, it it stutters and stops until after World War II um, when uh, the Canadian government, he found a Canadian prime minister who was actually a believer in Ouija boards and spiritualism and seances and all kinds of cool stuff like that and makes him the guy who sort of... um, uh, yeah, you know, and it's right after World War Two. It makes him the guy who, um, who actually gives them a budget.
0: Yeah, I found the line: Canadian Prime Minister William Mackenzie King, publicly known to have strong belief in supernatural. You um, took these
1: documents secretly, and so on, and so forth. Yeah. So That's uh, our Canadian Prime Minister. Who, you know, a nice little accident of history there. Yeah. So, um, we had to come up with a, 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 a you know, what's wrong with, you know, the, the, the one thing that was, that was not in it when we, when, it, when the first manuscript showed up. Uh, was we didn't have what's wrong with MMEPIC, and that MMEPIC t- um, uh, uh, stands for Meteorological uh, at the Internet, because the original idea was that the organization is uh, created to deal with unusual weather phenomena and weather deaths, because the was victims always show up frozen solid in the middle of summer, uh, having died in a blizzard in the middle of summer, and things like that. Um, or, uh, or, you know, find they're frozen and they're alive and you bring them inside to warm them up and they drop dead of heat exposure because you've raised the temperature to 60 degrees. Um, so it starts off being sort of disguised under this sort of meteorological, uh, environmental, uh, investigation group. Um, and it has a real budget and it has real staff and uh, it pulls people out of, uh, the British military and out of the, sorry, the, the Canadian military and the Canadian uh, law enforcement to to staff it, and so we had to figure out. Okay, well, you know, Pisces problem and I hope I'm not making any spoilers here. Pisces problem is that it's being, re- they've been taken over by the Shan. They're being run by aliens. Now they've had their, they've had their body snatcher problem. Um us V eights problem is they're completely flat busted, broke and, or uh, barely have any staff left at all. And they're operating out of a basement, the, you know, in the defense department somewhere uh, about six of them. And then a whole bunch of people who used to be on the staff, but aren't anymore because they all got fired at the end of the cold war. Um, Delta Green's problem is they're all, they're completely illegal. They have to beg, borrow, and steal everything despite the fact that they are true to their mission. And Majestic 12's problem is it's completely corrupt. You know, it uh, the, the mission has been corrupted uh, to serve the needs of the people on the on the steering committee. Uh, and to serve, uh, the, the, the interests of the MIGO, um, so it's completely it, it, you 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 know you can't there's all these problems if you're a member of any of these organizations you're screwed on one level or another so how are we going to screw our nice Canadians with Mepic and we came up with the idea that um they're they're starting to make the mistake that you can use the mythos to fight the mythos that they're they're uh um rather than being like Delta Green was and just burn everything. You know, just being like the Inquisition and going, well, okay, there goes that tome and and lighten it on fire if they can manage to do that. Um, Yeah, mean uh, the uh, the uh, guys at M. Epic have been storing it away, whatever they can find, and thinking, well, maybe we can, you know, learn something from this stuff. And uh, the 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 problem is that their chief researcher has now become a sorcerer. their chief researcher has has, uh, uh, realized that this is the key to all this power and that um, he has sort of turned M-Epic, despite the organization doesn't realize it yet, into his own private Mythos gear collection organization, (laughs) um, where he will, uh, you know, contact very, I mean, he's he's making more and more contacts amongst people who are uh, collectors of Mythos uh, antiquities and... um, uh, tomes and gigaws and trinkets. And uh, if he can't, uh, if he can't purchase them, he'll sick, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll sick um, the agents of M epic on them to steal the stuff, you know, and then in the interest of national security and bring it back to the vault where it'll be kept safe. And then, you know, he gets it. He's also uh, raising money by, by photocopying various mythos tomes that have come into his possession and selling them uh, on the open market, um, and uh, you know, to raise cash for himself. Uh, and um, so there's this there's this tumor at the heart of the organization. And um, you know, any epic campaign will eventually have to lead up to the fact that the uh, that the guy who showed up and knew the um, bind spell to get the dark young to go away and not eat your whole team, he's actually the problem. Um, he's actually going to be the guy you're going to have to get rid of later because um, uh, he's uh, on his way to, he's on his, he, he thinks that one day he's going to get to be Ibon, you know, the sorcerer Ibon. Um, and we used Ibon as sort of, uh, and, and it's a and some of that stuff uh, because uh, Canada has two things going for it. Number one, it's got the Thagwa stuff. And number two, it's got all the Hyperborea stuff. Up in you know with Greenland, you know, so close to it. Um, so um, those are sort of the two places that most of their we tried to draw a lot of the, the, the M epic material from, um, and um, that was basically you know what we we wanted to do with it. We it, it couldn't work perfectly. That was the thing that you know had to be. It doesn't have as many people you know, because it's Canada. M epic's budget's not gigantic. Uh, the agency probably has no more people permanently employed than Delta Green does in its cell structure. I mean, Delta Green only has 70 or 80 people in its cell structure at any one time. And then hundreds of friendlies. Um, MEPIC's no bigger. Um, and they have all of Canada to cover. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's, the budget's not huge. Um, uh, they're, they're not Majestic 12 where they can whistle up stealth choppers. Uh, when they need one or armed, you know, strike forces or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's that, there's this weird level of comfort that you have a budget, you have an office, you have places to go, you have people who are doing research, uh, who can provide you some answers about what you're dealing with. But the problem is, is that just collecting that information that, you know, I guess I'm Epic is there to show you the downside to collecting to, about knowing too much about the mythos. Right. About collecting that information, that it, 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 it ultimately is a temptation to to, um, to try and wield it, you know, to you know, to make your life easier, to be, be right. more powerful, or to extend your life. Um, so that's that would be. Hopefully, I've managed to answer that question.
0: Okay. No, that that sort of presents a clear dilemma and gives a. Um, no, of course it's interesting. You know, there there are people in Delta Green who do have. Uh, mythos magic. So how does uh, Delta Green? So Delta Green, I mean, usually burns the books, but they don't. Um, you know, there is the D stacks and uh, uh, the other resources they have um, available to them. So how does Delta Green's philosophy uh, compare to? Uh,
1: well, Delta Green, when they're doing that, they're essentially they're breaking their own rules. Um, they don't like to admit to it, and they have the rule. And again, part of it is that the rule exists because the leadership doesn't trust the people lower down to be able to handle it. I gotcha. Um, uh, and they have this, and I would say that in, in, you know, it would be a self deluding idea that, you know, well, we're adults. We can take, we can, you know, Alphonse can work a spell cause he's a grown-up, And meanwhile, those guys down in, you know, in J cell, don't let them have any magic cause they'll just screw it up. Um, that idea that there are people in Delta green who have access to magical powers or magic spells, um, Again, it's 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 kind of a dirty secret, you know. They're not supposed to. They do. Uh, they're tolerated. They're kept an eye on. And if they, you know, turn out to be a problem, you know, they would be uh, they would be very quickly uh, taken out uh, or eliminated. Um, uh, you know, Delta Green has all these may have all these uh, sort of hard and fast rules that you know turn out to be not as hard and fast. As the leadership tells you it is, because it's not convenient to them, like any organization, you know what I mean. Um, but uh, meanwhile, M. Epic, uh, I guess they're, they're, the reason they're different is they have an active policy of don't bruise the book, collect all the goodies up, bring them back to the lab. We'll poke them and prod them and learn something, you know, valuable <laughs> from this probably the valuable lesson being don't poke it, don't prod it. (laughs) Um, But uh, that's what they have lab assistants for. And and no doubt that um, there's any number of Canadian, I guess, beakers, (laughs) you know, like poor guy at Muppet Labs, who's always being put through the ringer by Dr. Bunsen. High
0: high turnover rate then, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, uh, so the the, – that's basically the, the the difference. That there's an active policy, and and the it's in a way that is very similar to the Pisces situation, where uh, Pisces the whole um, leadership uh, of the organization is being run by uh, the uh, the Shan, the insects mm-hmm. from Shagai, uh, but uh, the and um, uh, you know, and they have an interest in gathering up intelligence and uh, and, and gathering up mythos. Tomes, mythos, gear, you know, things like that. Uh, It's a little different for, um, it's a little uh, different for um, uh, Pisces in that what they've got is all the best intentions. Um, It's run by humans. It's got the best intentions and it's still going wrong. You know, it's got to be, and that's, that is another sort of aspect of it is that, you know, we wanted to show that, okay, it's not corrupt from the top down it's not you know um got a bad agenda it's got a real budget it's got a, a laudable mission but things are still going wrong because you're you're rubbing up against the mythos and it's going wrong <laughs> um it always goes wrong because you're you know you know you touch the mythos that's that's there's always going to be a downside it's always going to go wrong um so uh you know guys like you know so um uh, it's uh it's one more lesson that you know maybe you know maybe those maybe those uh, reactionaries over at Delta Green do have the right idea, the best thing to do. And again, the downside to burning everything is that you know you don't have the you don't have the bind uh, spawn of uh, you know uh, dark young. You don't have the bind dark young spell when the dark young comes crashing out of the woods. And then what? I yeah. guess you run for it. Uh, you know, uh, you run, you cry, you die. I mean, that's pretty much the, the, how that's going to work out. Uh, because you burned the book because it was bad for people to know that stuff. So both sides are you know either either approach <laughs> sucks. <laughs> you know, but welcome to the mythos. It's gonna suck.
0: Um, yeah, that that's sort of been the uh, the uh, basic uh, theme, uh, reoccurring theme in uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, regardless of era. Because um, was- we're talking about all the uh, uh, major. Or- Chapters of the of the uh, the book so far, except really uh, the disciples of the worm. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a little bit, but why don't you go to a little more? I mean, that's one of your chapters too. So, well,
1: I I will say that I gotta actually give credit where credit is due. My when I was in high school, my friend Jason Harrington uh, was running Call of Cthulhu, and Jason ran a scenario that was very similar to the disciples of the worm. And I loved it. I had one of the best Call of Cthulhu games of my life playing up against the the, the Disciples of the Worm. I think they may have been called the Children of the Worm at the time. And um, it was ghastly. It was absolutely a ghastly scenario. And it, it, it left such an impression that um, I always wanted to turn it into some material. Uh, and I, you know, years ago I talked to, to Jason about this, but uh, nothing ever really came of it. Now, he, he passed away. Uh, Around 2000, 2001, in a car accident, uh, and so yes, I am robbing his grave by taking his ideas and turning them into a, a scenario. Um, but um, uh, uh, he had nothing but good ideas when it came to Call of Cthulhu. And he was a really talented uh, storyteller and uh, game player. And um, uh, if anything, the disciples of the, the Worm are an homage to him. Most of the most of the original most ghastly aspects of the disciples come uh, from him. Uh, and the disciples of the worm um, are essentially a cult of sorcerers. that has been uh, bopping around for about a thousand years um, that uh, began uh, due to a, <laughs> a mythos accident. Somebody was using a gate spell to look at another dimension and, uh, and essentially flubbed his, uh, his, um, went in there without the proper charms and wards on and gets horribly raped by some interdimensional creature that implants its eggs in him uh, through uh, the largest uh, orifice uh, you're going to find on the average human male um, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, planted its eggs in him and next thing you know it grows up and he's got this giant armored uh, 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 tapeworm roughly the size of a lamprey covered with uh, horned uh, spiked plates anchored in his uh, gastrointestinal tract um, causing him to be in total agony and um, uh, despite being rescued from the other dimension um, they can't seem to get this thing out of him Uh, the side effects turn out to be despite the fact you're in terrible agony the thing won't it, it can't kill you uh, ooh, it's actually an extremely successful parasite in that it's designed to um, uh, extend your life so that you will continue to eat and continue to feed the parasite. The parasite can continue to lay more eggs, which will hatch because it's hermaphroditic. Um, without the use of certain drugs and spells and rituals, uh, somebody who's infested with all these things eventually just blows up into this giant swollen uh, thing, but it is prevented from dying because the excrement, whatever waste product these worms um, uh, excrete uh, following their absorption of nutrients from the human um, just continuously repairs any cell damage that's done. So you can be twisted and warped and stretched into this bloated giant, uh, immobile uh, mound of squirming bag of skin uh, surrounding a whole bunch of squirming worms so long as you keep being fed. Um, and it's like, well, gee, where's the benefit to that? Well, our, our sources have figured out how to arrest the breeding process. Uh, and what it means is they now have this parasite or this symbiote inside them that uh, prevents them from dying, prevents them from going into shock, can save them from just about any physical damage, save for, you know, uh, decapitation or a headshot. Excuse me, and um, you know they um, they now have overcome the big hurdle that every mythos sorcerer has, and that is there's only so much they can learn in one lifetime, and that's sort of every mythos sorcerer that we almost everyone that we run across, whether it's uh, 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 let's see, um, you know uh, the wizard Watley, old man Watley from the Dunwich stories. Uh, Lives a long time, but he drops dead, uh, you know, at the sort of at the beginning of the story. Meanwhile, uh, old man Waite has transferred his mind into his daughter's body, so he gets a whole new lifetime to uh, continue to learn about the mythos. Um, uh, You know, uh, uh, Joseph Kerwin, the character from uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, has found a way to resurrect himself, you know, from his essential salts. All these guys there's all these various sorcerers who are trying to be immortal. That's like the first step. Once you're immortal, now you have all the time in the world to acquire enough knowledge and power to, um, you know, succeed at whatever you're trying to succeed at. Uh, ultimately it always seems like what they're trying to succeed at is, well, gathering more knowledge and power. Um, you know, the, the, the means becomes the end until they can't see the difference. And that's kind of one of the things I wanted to do with the disciples. They're, um, they're immortal, but uh, in order to function while they're immortal, they have to keep themselves stoked on um, narcotics to overcome the pain. Uh, just because this thing repairs all the damage it does to you while it's living in your guts doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. So they, they're kind of drug-addled most of the time, and so they're, the fa- even though they've lived multiple lifetimes, they're only getting a percentage of that lifetime. In actual work done, because they have to keep uh, so heavily sedated. Um, Their goal, of course, their stated goal, is to figure out a way to have the benefits of the worms without actually having to have a worm inside them. And um, of course, uh, you know, I tried to, in the the, the disciples, come up with all these problems that would be associated with being immortal. Uh, You know, number one. Uh, they have a tendency to forget things. Um, They have a tendency to forget that 200 years ago, they already tried this experiment to, you know, to, to harvest the life giving elixir from the worms. But so they do it again because they've simply forgotten. Um, So they start documenting it and writing it down. Well, as a thousand years go by, I've documented um, uh, experiments. It turns into something the size of the library of Alexandria. And even if you have the library, you know, uh, this this giant memory you've created for yourself, because maybe he can only remember back 80 or so years, you know, tops. Um, uh, there's all this information that he can't really sort through. He, you know, the, the head cult, the head uh, 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 cultist, or the head uh, of the cult has to have uh, acolytes essentially double check his brain for him because – He simply can't keep track of his own history uh, on his own. Uh, You know, the library is made of paper. When it burns down, those memories are gone. Or when a section of it burns up, those memories are gone. He has to start over from scratch. And so essentially they find themselves doing the classic thing that people, you know, Einstein uh, said was the – a a good definition for insanity was doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So they're trying to, you know – They're trying to uh, uh, overcome this, this, relieve themselves of this demonic possession, as they sometimes refer to it, while remaining immortal uh, so that they can, you know, win. Hooray, we won. We're immortal. Um, What they're going to do after that, you know, it's a whole other matter. They haven't really – it's been so long since they've been working towards this one goal. They've kind of, you know, forgotten that there should be another goal after it, at least – the head of the organization has. There's other members of the cult who have different goals, who are not quite as old, who have other tricks up their sleeves, but the, I guess the big thing that goes on with um, Disciples of the Worm is uh, they ran into Delta Green once upon a time back in the 80s, and a few uh, samples of these parasites, these extra-dimensional parasites were captured, and they were supposed to be destroyed, but this is back when Delta Green was yet hadn't been organized into a cell structure yet. Things were a lot looser, and the uh, researcher they brought in to analyze the samples decided, no, 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 this is the fountain of youth. We need to find a way to 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 make this work. So, parallel to the to the cult working on trying to find a way to uh, make this stuff and to make themselves immortal. Now we have modern science being directed at it by guys who were once upon a time Delta Green um, friendlies or worked with Delta Green and might even still be considered Delta Green friendlies, um, and uh, are, have have uh, created this this corporation called Farmethusila uh, Incorporated, and they are trying to. Find that fountain of youth, and uh, as it gets more and more difficult to make this work, they get more and more ruthless in their uh, uh, in their um, attempts to uh, find the key to uh, immortality. Um, to the point where they have found they have they have uh, extracted a a uh, compound called Compound eighty two. They've made from the worms' excrement that has some of the effects of being possessed or being infested by the worms, but not all of them, and they are now marketing that on the open market. Um, To harvest it, they have to harvest it from live human subjects. So they've set up this horrifying process where, in the third world where they have a a charity, uh, a nonprofit charity that is designed to um, uh, try and help people get free of drug addiction in the third world. And as part of the in, the induction process into the uh, into the program to see if you're a good candidate for this, you know, free clinic, uh, they run these background checks on you. And uh, for those folks who have no connection to family or friends uh, who aren't going to be missed, you know, they ask you who your connections, who your family are, because you're going to need a lot of support during this. <laughs> during and they go, well, I don't have anybody. You know, that's the guy who gets picked to go in. Oh, you're a perfect candidate. That poor bastard gets shipped off to uh, a special facility uh, that uh, uh, they've moved and burned. They 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 have it for a while and they burn it down and they have it for a while and they burn it down. Uh, it's constantly being moved, but the 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 latest place that put it was in um, the Congo because the Congo is completely fucked. And um, what better place to put a um, a, a horrible Laboratory where uh, human captives are infested with worms and then essentially uh, milked for the um, uh, for the uh, 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 elixir, which is then taken and sold to various rich people around the world who have problems that only Compound 82 can solve. Um, Things like you know broken spines, uh, paralysis. Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, um, uh, prion inf- infections, uh, AIDS, um, all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, again, the the Compound eighty two is sort of the genie out of the bottle in the scenario where, okay, you've got your creepy lab, you've paid off your local African warlord to keep it safe. Well, you know, even your African warlord can figure out what this stuff could be worth to him. Yeah. And uh, as part of uh, uh, Disciples of the Worm, you know, one of the problems is, is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, if Far Methuselah thinks they've got, oh, we'll just pay this, you know, third world, uh, you know, baboon a few, uh, you know, shiny dollars and he'll do everything we say. Yeah, okay, you know, way to underestimate the, uh, <laughs> way to underestimate the locals. Our, our warlord is looking at this stuff realizing that Compound 82, you could have an army. That would never, couldn't, wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have to have battle casualties. If somebody's just shot to pieces, you just hook them up to an IV full of Compound 82, and they're going to be recovering from their sucking chest wound within a couple of weeks, and they're going to be back on their feet in just weeks. People who have gotten broken bones will be ready to go in, you know, days. Uh, people who have AIDS. Uh, this will repair the damage done to their immune system, but it won't cure the AIDS. That's one of the things about compound two. It won't cure the disease, but it will repair the damage done by the disease. So um, if you have particularly with something like AIDS, uh, you need constant supply of it. So our Colonel, uh, Colonel Matumba, who's our African warlord is thinking, hmm, you know, what better way to motivate the troops than to, You know, give them this elixir, which will uh, spare them the ravages of HIV and a guy who can bring a cure to HIV or not a cure, but a way to stave off HIV, you know, so that the people who have HIV are still uh, beholden to him forever, you know, um, because he can cut their supply of uh, the compound off Uh, in a situation where something like 30 percent of the continent is HIV positive. That pretty much means that uh, if Colonel Matuma gets a hold of this stuff, he gets to be Stalin or Mao or Hitler all over again or Genghis Khan um, only in sub-Saharan Africa because the population will, you know, have to come to him right? for this. Uh, not to mention everybody who's um, – uh, I can't remember off the top of my head if uh, compound 882 could also, it doesn't, I don't know that it goes so far as to, it, to, to regrow limbs or not. I think it, it does. It can do certain things, um, but I'm not sure it could regrow limbs. I think we might have had something in there where like if you, if you, uh, if your hand was chopped off and you reattached the hand, it could regrow the nerve connections, for instance, uh, what that means about somebody else's hand attached, you know, you sewed somebody else's hand on and, uh, you know uh whack yourself up with compound 82 it might regrow the nerves but eventually the hand would be rejected unless you get constant supply of compound 82 so everybody who got their hands chopped off in sierra leone wow might be looking for uh looking to join up with the the colonel so that they too can recover lost limbs recover eyes um all the other kind of you know mutilations that had happened um to them during the, the horrors of those wars, all those damaged uh, people looking for this guy as their as their uh, savior. Um, so he's just one more sort of subplot um, that, uh, uh, you know, that I have uh, in the Disciples of the Worm. It kind of goes all over the place. I'll admit there's you know, there's the mythos problem. There's the science problem that thinks that they're, you know, th- that is exploiting the mythos problem, and then there's the problems that the scientists are creating for themselves, um, uh, because they're 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 now through the mythos have this product, right, and what the implications of that product are, uh, um,
0: and drugs. not to mention the uh, the other thing is that the disciples of the worms are intricately involved in the uh, drug war in uh, Mexico. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the, that was something that uh, was also hooked into it. So yeah, it, it really does go all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, they 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 sort of followed the opium trail. Wherever there was opium in the world, that's where they they land. Uh, and their last place was into China, and they checked out of into China because the Japanese invaded in the forties. And they ended up in Mexico where black tar heroin was being produced in the hills, uh, on the mountains of the Sierra Madre. Um, they are now hooked into the, um, uh, various cartels down there and for the moment are sort of a, um, neutral because they, one of the things the cult does very well is they have mastery over moving through another dimension, this allows them to, you know, traverse great distances with relative ease, and uh, the idea being that um, that's how they've moved around the world. That's uh, how they've done a lot of their research. Um, they can now, so they are now sort of smugglers par excellence, and it's one of the ways that they pay their bills for having a place to live and protection uh, in Mexico is that they can make anything go anywhere. And there's various groups down, and right now. And I, when I was writing this, I didn't realize how crazy things were going to get. But right now, things are completely bug fucked down in Mexico, yeah. with the uh, drug cartels just in the, and just you know shooting the hell out of the place. It's uh, in some ways it almost sounds as, as bad as it was in Colombia during the 80s. Um, Colombia still has drug violence, uh, but you know it's you know they they have more problems with the FARC uh, rebels than anything else these days. But in in Mexico, it's just you know, boatloads of cash buying, um, uh, illiterate guys that you can hand a machine gun to and point them in the right direction. Uh, and it's, it is, it is extra, extra crazy. And, um, one of the things that I, two things that I wanted to, I kind of got into it, uh, put into it was, uh, uh, the, from real life is, uh, Losetas, which is the, um, bizarre, uh, how to describe it. It uh, apparently a platoon, an entire back in the nineties sometime, an entire platoon of Mexican special forces, um, defected in mass to one of the cartels. Um, uh, the, uh, Grupo air mobile, uh, the air mobile, uh, group of special forces is how it's translated into English. Um, they they defected to uh, one of the cartels, and um, I think it was the Guadalajara cartel. And then they they basically became their their hit squad. And then they started, and eventually they became training um, uh, the gunmen for. They set up you know training centers and so started training gunmen uh, for the cartels and military tactics. Um, nowadays, I don't think there's anybody left in the um, there's the, the the Mexican army didn't take this very well and uh, very few Los Zetas original the original defectors um, or, or deserters actually ever got recaptured most of them just got gunned down on the spot, um, but uh, I don't believe there's any of those guys left um, in the who were from the original def- uh, the original deserters but you know it has created this organization of sort of paramilitary trained gunmen who started off being um, you know, the 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 muscle for one of the cartels, but ultimately, um, you know, uh, they have stopped being the muscle, and instead of being a cartel in their own right, and um, they're sort of the they were sort of the reason why things have been kicked into overdrive in Mexico as far as the the. Serious use of ridiculous amounts of firepower, you know, grenades, rocket-propelled grenades, and belt-fed machine guns, and you know, military, pretty serious military small arms. Uh, when it comes to these cartels shooting at each other,
0: you know, um, or at the police or military. Yeah.
1: Yes, there's uh, that was one of the ones that really floored me was when they they got into these uh, two ambushes. Um, and I can't remember where it was where the military got ambushed by. Uh, gunman for the cartel, and apparently from everything I've read, just handed them their ass. Um, you know, I don't know, understand how you can pull an ambush on a bunch of guys driving in a vehicle and um, you're staging the ambush and you, you take more casualties than the military does. Um, you've clearly flubbed it. If <laughs> <laughs> You know, you jump out and go boo and they wipe you out. Um, that's just... That clearly you're not doing your job right. Well, yeah. anyway, so it, it's the 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 disciples are hidden inside this very chaotic world of uh, the Mexican cartels, chaotic and violent. And um, they, uh, uh, while we do not have, we sort of have an idea that you know we do have some stuff set up in it so that uh, the players could end up seeing what happens when a uh, uh, you know. A member of the cartels try and move against the disciples thinking, well, I don't know how they do this smuggling thing, but uh, right now the disciples work for everybody so that nobody, they won't be fought over, you know, right. Everybody gets to use their services, um, you know, and that's it. Uh, so that uh, they, they won't be beholden to any one group and they won't be uh, a resource to be fought over. It's supposed to be sort of you know neutral. Um, and, you know, somebody of course is going to get the idea. Well, yeah, I know the last time somebody tried to take over, these guys, los brujos, the the witches, as they're referred to. Yeah, sure, some other guy, you know, showed up with his head bitten off. But I'm going to do. I'm going to be smarter and tougher and more clever. And it's not going to happen to me. And so there's, you know, as part of the source material. There's some Mexican drug cartel guys who can sort of hopefully be the red shirts for any scenario uh, and show the players what, how the monster works, you know, if they try and take over or try and take on the, uh, los brujos, the disciples and, and get horribly mangled for their efforts. Cause, uh, say what you like about these drug addled guys with worms up there, but they sure know how to use a summon bind spell. So it's probably not the people you want to muck with unless you're starting your, unless you're starting with a fuel air bomb. I mean, that's the trick. <laughs> yeah, the the idea that you're going to take over the disciples and force them to work for you—it's like, well, you—I mean, they're going to get you because to get them to work for you, they have to be alive. Yeah, you know, you can't control the resource. The resource will will you know will will kill you. Um, you can wipe them out, but controlling them is a is a pipe dream that will just get you you know horribly bent, folded, spindled, and mutilated by some mythos uh, critter. So that's where they—that's the disciples of the worm. They are, um, like I said, they originally from a, a scenario that my friend Jason Harrington came up with. Right. And um, it's—I uh, I think during uh, Dig for Victory, I told the story about where we had the the corpse on the um, autopsy table with the worm in it. Mm-hmm. We we're trying to figure out how to get the worm out of the corpse. So somebody had the bright idea that we should take the take the jumper cables from one of our cars and attach it to the steel uh, autopsy table in the autopsy theater and uh, then wire it into a wall socket. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. If we electrocute it, the the worm will, you know, be forced to leave the body. Yeah. 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 Uh, just to repeat that for the audience, so they don't have to go digging through, um, through Dig for Victory for it. Yeah, the last thing we saw before the lights blew out, plunging the room into complete darkness, was the worm shooting out of the Y stitch in the body cavity like a pop tart out of a toaster. <laughs> and then the room is completely black, and all and the keeper's like, "You hear something slithering on the floor." Ooh. And I, the, my, you know, and, and as I'm saying the words. Everyone put your guns away. Don't start, shoot, and keep <laughs> a roll. Some dice turns to one of the players and says, it's touching your foot. Make a sand roll. <laughs> he, makes, he blows the sand roll, maxes out the sand loss. It's like six points. Makes his idea roll, goes temporarily insane, Starts shooting. The rest, of the, the rest of that scene, it's all strobe effect as everyone's diving for cover, pulling their guns, shooting, you know, as everyone's trying to get out of the way of the bullets. Uh, everyone's firing around in the dark. Um, I threw myself on the floor, uh, actually find the monster, find the, the worm, uh, end up beating the worm to death on the edge of the um, autopsy table and carving my hands up in the process because it's covered with spikes and horns and, you know, serrated edges. Well, everybody else in the room has managed to shoot each other. I mean, we had, like, we started with four-player characters. We're down to, like, three. No, we're down to – actually, we had five-player characters. We're down to three uh, because uh, somebody had shot themselves out of the scenario. Not dead, but, like, you're not going to be recovering <laughs> anytime soon, you know? You're going to the hospital. End of scenario. Um, yeah, and um, – yeah, we that that didn't work out real well for us. That was just <laughs> yeah, just that that and it was just ugh, yeah, and it got worse. I mean, the scenario <laughs> and got it got
0: worse. worse. That's the best. Well, part it got there.
1: worse because one of the player characters was the, um, and I use her name in the scenario. I use her name in Disciples of the Worm. My friend's name was Val Hardiman, and she was playing one of the. She's playing the, the 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 one of the doctors who's doing the autopsy. Um, she gets kidnapped by the disciples of the worm. And they take her to this the spa, like I have in the scenario. This is all stuff that I got from Jason. They take her to the spa, this old abandoned health spa. And uh, she, uh, they're going to, you know, they're, they want to know what we know about them and who's out to get them, and they want all this information. And somehow she manages to escape from her captivity. She's running around, armed only with this not as sharp as she'd like it to be, butcher's knife. Uh, during the course of being chased through the uh, spa trying to find a way out, she ends up accidentally falling uh, into the pool with the worm mother Ooh. and uh, ends up um, stabbing it to death, actually, um, in the pool while it's, you know, and it's like this in the pool. It's like this big bloated white, you know. Shamu whale sized thing that's trying to roll on top of her and drown her. And she's stabbing it with the knife and it's bursting open and worms are flopping out. And she manages to stab it to death and, you know, blows all of her sand rolls and passes out. And when she comes to, you know, she's in, she's, she's strapped into the uh, horrible chair that the disciples have. And they're like, well, you've killed the worm mother, and I think the only appropriate uh, punishment for such a crime would be that you will have to take her place. You will have to be the new worm mother. And she says, you know, you're not going to put one of those things in me, you sons of bitches. It's like, what do you mean going to? We already did. Ooh. ouch. Val has to, so Val goes and has a seat, you know, and they bring us in who've been in the other room. We don't know any of this. And. During the course of this, we finally track them down to their to their horrible lair, and we bring the SWAT team up. And we get into the health spot. I'm trying to find Val in the health spot. We're going from room to room. You know, and the, 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 the cultists are making their escape, or decided to make their escape out of uh, a gate in the um, – uh, in the back of the you know, deep in there in, in the old, uh, health spa, one of the offices, they've, they've built a gate to escape to like a safe house or something. And, um, and during the, this, but you know, they're most of the cultists are trying to hold off the SWAT team. that's trying to get in the place catches on fire like it usually does. <laughs> and now we're in a burning, Now we're having a gun battle on a burning building. Cause that's always entertaining. And, uh, we're fighting our way through this place. And, um, we, uh, uh, we finally, like, um, you know, find some guy, like, where's our friend Val, where is she, you know, what'd you do with the, the the you know, the medical examiner you kidnapped, and he's like, "Uh, she's in the pool with the mother, and, you know, we're like, thanks, and we shoot him, you know, because, <laughs> like, and we run down, you know, well, the pool, we just find this pool, and there's, like, you know, burning roof falling into the pool, and sizzling, and the water starting to get, you know, steamy, because there's, there's, the roof's going to collapse in on it, you know, and we're like, you know, in the pool, with where is she, you know, like, you know, Val, well, we're calling out for, her, you know, and then the thing in the pool surfaces, you know, and it's all like, kill me, kill me. <laughs> We all blow our sand rolls immediately right there. We're just like, ah, it's not Val. It's not Val. Kill it, kill it, kill it. You know, we mow down our friend, you know, shoot her full of holes and she sinks back beneath the black water. And now we're all really pissed. And, you know, I, nobody wants to leave the building without killing all these guys. Yeah. You know, So we're running through the building, just uh, killing wounded cultists and shooting more. And we, we, you know, uh, the buildings collapsing, and some one of our players got—I think it was John—got killed by collapsing roof fell on him. He's burned to death, and we realize there's almost no way out. And um, we see a cultist running, so we we run and follow him, and he comes into the room with the you know with the gate, and uh, you know we sort of run up, you know, and, and having run to the building, we are now officially on fire. You know the keeper's like, okay, roll one d4 for your burning. You know, your 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 burning clothes. Okay, one d4. And you know, so now we're officially on fire. We grab the guy. We bums rush him through the gate, figuring that you know, we don't know the the code to activate the gate or what. You know, in case it's a keyed gate. But if we grab him, we just shove him toward it. He'll know what the code is. <laughs> And so we go flopping through the gate with this guy and we, we appear in a room with five or six other cultists, you know, who are all standing around having brought through books and artifacts and shit. And they're like in an apartment, you know, somewhere in town, you know, they're nowhere near the, the, the uh, spa, but they're all standing looking, looking very surprised. See These two flaming guys leap through the, the door, you know, holding on to their buddy. And we just throw, first thing we do is we just throw the cultists into the first group of other cultists and then just open up with the you know the the uh, the shotgun and the assault rifle and it's just this horrible massacre as we shoot all the cultists and just blasting away at them. they're trying to get out of the room and try to get the door open and we're shooting them and blowing them all over the walls <laughs> and we run out of bullets i mean you know we, we've been using up rounds we didn't have full man so we run out of bullets so then we just start beating them with the guns and with any instrument any, like a, a the last guy we we were we beat him with a lamp. We broke the lamp, a lamp and a coffee table over his head and then grabbed him. One of us grabbed him by each arm and threw him out a window. <laughs> <laughs> and he like drops like six or seven stories to the pavement, goes like splat. And we were still just so fucking keyed up by this. It wasn't enough. You know, we we're still like, you know, is there any more cultists to kill? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you're out of cultists. You know, well, we go down the hall, we kill random people in apartment buildings. <laughs> We no, we didn't quite go there, but we were. You know, if we'd blown a sand roll, even yeah, one
0: more sand roll, yeah, one more
1: sand roll. I think we would. Okay, just 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 keep the engine of destruction going until
0: the cops literally flamed out. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, we. Managed to put ourselves out just by rolling around and hitting and punching the cultists, you know.
0: <laughs> Stop dropping punch, I see.
1: Yeah, it was it was one of the best endings to a game ever. Um, not the least of which, because I have I have never since defenestrated a cultist. Um, you
0: think yeah. that would happen more often, but no. Yeah.
1: Yes, uh, but no. That was my one and only time throwing a cultist out a window to his death. I did throw a zombie out a window. Uh, once, but it really—I'm not sure that could be considered to his death.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, unless he fell on his head.
1: No, uh, not even to his deanimation. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was a whole other scenario. But yeah, that one—that scenario had such an impact on me. I'm like, okay, you know, I gotta find a way to immortalize this. This was too good. Yeah. So they that that the the cult in that one, the children of the worm became the disciples of the worm. And I gotcha. That, um. That,
0: Well, I think that, I mean, that, that story alone, I I think, uh, uh, sort of, if if you don't want to get targets opportunity after hearing that, I mean, what, what can (laughs) you, um,
1: well, clearly it's not the product for you. I mean, yeah,
0: exactly, that's... exactly. Um, but there's some other uh, news going on with the, uh, the you know, Call of Cthulhu and uh, Pagan and Arc Dream, obviously. Uh, uh, the Unspeakable Oath is uh, has been resurrected.
1: Uh, well, we um, are trying. We yeah. are trying. We've put together you know, a, um editorial board. We're taking in new submissions. We had a, a bunch of old submissions that we'd sort of selected for publication, and but we had just never been able to come up with a time. Uh, to do it, the time between trying to get other projects done and just staying afloat financially in these oh-so-interesting economic times we're all living in right oh, now. Oh yes, yes. Um, we just never had the resources or the time uh, to, uh, to to devote to getting the oath back on. And we had talked to a couple of a couple other uh, companies and people had over the years talked to us about resurrecting the oath. I think there's two different groups before. Uh, Shane Ivy came to us at Dark Dream, and he does such a good job with the two Delta Green books, that is um, uh, Eyes Only and Targets of Opportunity, um, that uh, you know we didn't have the we didn't have any real trepidation about um, putting him putting it in those hands. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we're hopefully in the next uh, you know uh, before the end of the year we'll see a, an issue of The Oath out uh, for distribution uh, in stores. So, um, that'll be a good thing. Uh, there's plenty of stuff that, uh, needs to be, that, that have been submitted and I'd love to get back in print. We, the last three issues of the oath back in the late, early two thousands, um, uh, the last one was probably 2000. Um, we had done articles on, um, the Knights Templar and the Togi, uh, secret societies. And, um, we have a new, you know, there's a new other article that uh, was submitted that I quite like that uh, deals with the assassins of the Hashishin uh, as a secret society. And uh, we want to try and, you know, make sure we get one of those in uh, per issue. Sort of uh, not and not not as a not as a mythos necessarily. You know, here's the here's the Templars as a mythos organization. No, but to give the actual history in a way that uh, will inspire keepers to do their own thing, you know, maybe some suggestions on how to use the Templars uh, in a Call of Cthulhu game um, as opposed to oh, they're all worshippers of Shug because Baphomet is an avatar of no, we're not going <laughs> we to do that, and so, and we've kind of always had a uh, general bias against doing that kind of thing. You know,
0: that just seems to be too obvious. I mean, that's just such a, you know, direct kind of like a cliche yeah. almost. So. Yeah.
1: But the idea of trying to come up with, here's the, here's a real secret society. It lasted hundreds of years. And, um, here, are, you know, the historical areas it touched on, you know, here's how you can possibly use them in a scenario. I mean, um, there's a scenario called bar sinister, which is not published yet. Um, it's been play tested that we ended up, uh, that involved Templars, but they were, um, we had a great scenario that involved uh, undead zombie Templars, um, but they weren't, um, they weren't the Templar organization. They, we, we were archaeologists, we'd go and we'd excavate a castle in Spain uh, that was a Templar castle um, that was used during the Reconquista as the, you know, Leon and um, Seville uh, reconquered this, the Iberian Peninsula from Islam. And the Templars were very popular over there in Spain. Uh, they don't get uh, dissolved like they do in France, because uh, in Spain they were actually very useful to the crown. I think they just changed the name of the organization, and they just that's the end of it. Um, when the Pope says, all Templars must be divested of their properties and arrested as heretics, the Spanish king just changed the name of the organization in Spain and said, so, we don't have any Templars here, don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um but uh, you know we go to this castle to excavate it because we're archaeologists and we're scholars in your in your country doing scholarly scholarly things, and you know the scenario was really great because we you know it was Templar research and we went to Istanbul and you know researched these documents that the the ottomans had captured from cyprus and malta and it was you know from the old templar documents and found our way to this castle that was an undiscovered templar site in the mountains of of spain and and we just didn't do enough research when we got to spain because if we had we would have found the account that about how when napoleon invaded spain he bivouacked some soldiers in this castle and they were never heard from again but well, we skipped that part of the research. <laughs> we went straight to the castle instead of digging it up, you know. And we found out about it because it was a castle that the Templars destroyed. Uh, we found these Templar documents that said, you know, from the some knight, you know, of the of the order to the. Um, uh grand master saying that that problem in spain has been taken care of we've raised the castle to the ground killed all the heretical members of our order and expunged them from the rolls it's all uh, no problem problem solved so like well clearly they took care of whatever problem it is we can just go waltzing right in there and you know before we know it we're digging up this castle and um one of the first things we find is uh, a, uh, a whole bunch of Egyptian canopic jars, which are what they use to store the mummy's innards in. Right, after right. The process of mummification. And I'm like, ah, canopic, Egyptian canopic jars <laughs> in a Templar castle. Okay, you know. <laughs> and Chris, Chris Kleepack, who's playing with us, uttered what I think is probably my favorite line of Call of Cthulhu ever. He said... This is one of those situations where my character has never been more happy and I've never been more sad. <laughs> my character's thinking, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm going to be in the history books. I, my, my name as an archaeologist is made. I'm going to be the Howard Carter of my generation. And you as a player know, Oh, we're so fucking dead. <laughs> we're not making it out of here alive. This should not be. <laughs> this is not going to turn out well at all. And it I would just like to point out how not well it turned out. <laughs> um, uh, so,
0: is this going to be a scenario that's in the Unspeakable Oath? Is this? Uh... No, I
1: don't. It's. I don't know what we're going to do with it. Um, I think it should be. Now, the keeper who ran it uh, thinks that we he wants to rewrite it. He wants to rewrite it and replay test it because, um we unfortunately released the undead zombie Templars into the world. Mm. And, you know, everything went wrong. I and mean, it was like, it was like the, the whole, the whole thing was like, everything zombies are not supposed to do. These guys do <laughs> um, like, uh, you know, okay. We sh- first of all, they talk, you know, and at one point, one of the party and one of the archaeologists has disappeared and we can't find them. We hear these screams coming from one of the, the, uh, is one of the tombs, and we go down there and we're like, hello, Bob, are you down there? And we hear somebody say, you know, you know, we do who's down there, and, and we hear somebody say in medieval uh uh I think it's called Occitan is the uh medieval language. We hear somebody say, Come closer. <laughs> and as you know one of our players, Blair, starts to move a little closer. He makes a listen roll. hears some other voice down there say, "I can't believe he fell for it." You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, "Oh shit!" You know, run out of the, you know, run out of the sepulcher. Just the zombies come boiling out. We put a few bullets on them. Realize, hmm, that's not working. You know, take a nice aim shot. Do a called shot on the head. Boom! You know, hit the zombie in the head with like an O1. Blow his, you know, helmet right off along with about thirty percent of his skull, and he keeps coming. Like, well, so much for George Romero. You know, (laughs) they've all got swords. They've all got shields. They've all got chainmail on. They come boiling out of this place. And we're like, you know, we all go running off into the night, uh, some of us wearing only their long johns and a gun belt and boots. Um, You know, as we flee the castle, the next morning we decide to go see if maybe, well, did they come out of the castle? They didn't chase us out. We should. We should go, maybe they went back, maybe they're like vampires, they had to go back and lay down, you know, during the daylight. So Blair, the guy who initially went down into the crypt and, you know, almost got suckered into an ambush, says, okay, I'll go up and I'll go in. So me and Blair go up to the castle, go to the big gatehouse, you know, in the front of the castle. And as we're sneaking through, he says, you know, uh, you're coming to the edge of the gatehouse, what do you want to do? And... Blair's so convinced that something's gonna jump out from the sides and attack him. He says, "I'll run through the gate really, really fast and then turn around." And he does. He runs through the gate really fast. He turns around with the shotgun, and there's like four undead zombie templars on each side of the gatehouse, and they just close like a wall, put their shields up. Now he's trapped inside the castle. Ouch! And there's then proceeds to be a foot race where he's running around. The castle, uh, you know, interior with these Templars chasing him, you know, like a <laughs> – and being zombies, they don't get tired. Right. So he's making con rolls. and others are just standing there in a shield wall holding him, you know, so he can't get out. Um, fortunately, thanks to an O-1 roll when we are back in uh, Istanbul, uh, we were able to come up with uh, an arms merchant who sold us some Turkish army um, – surplus from world war one when we needed some guns earlier part of the scenario involved going to the Tur- from istanbul across the bosphorus to the uh, mainland to and where there was a war going on between greek and greece and turkey at the time and we didn't want to go unarmed and get you know beaten up or robbed by bandits or soldiers or something in between so we'd loaded up on these guns and one of the things we managed to get a hold of was some turkish world war one grenades uh so I threw the grenades as Blair's making another orbit around the castle perimeter, uh, <laughs> screaming, "Go!" Oh, you know, the, we I threw a grenade behind the, the, the Templars who are blocking the door and they just look at it and like, huh, what's that? And it blows up and knocks them down with the concussion and he runs through them. And we run like little girls out of the, you know, down the hill, turn around and the Templars are coming out of the fortress in formation. They've, they've, created up a battle formation we're like okay these guys are too organized let's get out of here we flee we get to the town uh, the little village down the hill we're like run run undead zombie templars right behind us you know and since we're wearing our underwear our long johns with a flap in the back and only a gun belt you know and shoes we don't draw a lot of credibility and They just look at us like we're crazy. and We flee off to the city of Zaragoza, and we're like, "Okay, what are we gonna do?" And Blair's like, "We need to leave this. We need to leave Europe and never come back." You know, and I'm like, okay, "Well, what else can we do? Well, we need to do some research. We have to find out what these things are. So, you know, maybe there's something in the in the in the in the folklore that'll tell us how to stop them." You know, i like, "Well, we shot them in the head, and we shot them some more. We threw a grenade at them, and none of that worked. We, you know, what's left, right? Well, maybe we, there's an incantation or a you know an exorcism or a cross, you know, or something." You know, you really want to get close enough to them with those swords to show them across. Well, we'll try something. So we're trying to do some research, and one of the things we immediately hear is a news story that when the postman came to that little village that we'd left, uh, everybody was dead and the place was burned to the ground. Oh, they're they're fucking out of the castle. They're now expanding. You know, they're who knows what's going to happen next. They've wiped out one village. So we got to do the research fast. So everyone's split up, and we'll go across town and we'll do all the research. And so we're doing that. We're, we split up, we're going around town. And Brian Appleton, one of our editors here at Pagan, goes to the library at the University of Zaragoza, and um, you know, says, "I want to see any books you guys have on medieval alchemy." You know, and being a professor of medieval languages, he's pretty set for that. And so they're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, sir. All of our books on uh, all those books are currently being used at the moment." Really? All of them? Yes, yes, that wounded World War One veteran wanted to uh, use them. <laughs> World War One veteran? How do you know he's a World War One veteran? Well, his face and hands are bandaged as if he was injured by maybe a flamethrower or a mustard gas. I presumed he was a, a veteran. Really. <laughs> what, what gallery he's in? Oh, he's right over there. And Brian goes over and looks. And there's this guy dressed up like Dark Man from the you know, Sam Raimi movie with this big hat and a big coat and these gloves on and a bandaged face. And he's reading the books, and Brian's watching him making his spot hidden. And Keeper's like, mm, he's not breathing. And we're like, oh, fuck. The zombies can read? Wait a minute. The zombies can use the Dewey Decimal System? I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> what the fuck? What kind of zombies are these, anyways? You know, and so Brian goes and calls and tries to get a hold of us, but, you know, it's 1920. Zaragoza. We don't have cell phones. The only person that gets hold of is Blair. Blair, you got to get over to the university. There's a real live zombie here. He's using the card catalog. You know, oh my god. So, <laughs> rushes over. They go in and they look at him. What are you gonna do? He's like, well, we should wait till he leaves, and then we should follow him and see where he goes. Okay, okay, we'll, we'll follow the zombie. So they're waiting and waiting, and at some point this uh, this Ford truck pulls up with kind of like a canvas back on it, almost like a Deuce and a Half, you know, but it's you know a smaller truck pulls up and this guy gets out of it followed by another guy wearing bandages from head all over his face and a big hat and a big oversized coat. And we're like, wait a minute, the the zombies have a chauffeur. When did the zombies get a chauffeur? We don't have a fucking chauffeur. How the fuck is this happening? You know, and they've got a truck, you know, what the hell's going on? One of the things we noticed that as far as the books, the zombie was reading in the library, he's reading history books. He's reading guidebooks to Rome. Um, he's getting maps out. They're getting oriented. The zombies are getting oriented to the new (laughs) world they live in. So like, Oh my God, you know, what are they doing? You know, um, what are they up to? So Blair, of course, you know, the same guy who almost got suckered into the sepulcher, the same guy who, um, uh, had to do the big run around the interior of the castle walls says, I know what I'm going to do. I'll hide in the back of the truck. (laughs) <laughs> and they'll take me to their hideout and you follow you know, what if i lose you well don't lose me you know <laughs> okay that sounds like a great plan me and chris Kleepack are not there i would just like to say that as we decide we get back to the hotel we can't find them we decide to go to the university to see where they are and as we approach the university we can see a column of smoke Rising over the university, and there are police cars and fire engines. You know, it's one of those moments where you're just like, it's like that thing in um, in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Belloc looks around at the exploded flying wing and the burning buildings, the dead soldiers everywhere, and goes, "Jones." I mean, there's, you know, we see that column of smoke and we're like. There's no way that's not Blair. I mean, (laughs) that's going to be Blair-related smoke. There's no doubt in our minds. And sure enough, we get there, and we find the truck on fire. We find one of our last remaining NPCs dead on the ground. We find a, a zombie that has been shot to pieces by shotguns until it's immobile. And apparently what happened is Blair sneaks up to the truck after the zombie and his chauffeur went in the building. He goes to the back of the panel truck with the canvas, you know, flap on the back he lifts it up to climb in and inside the truck he sees two more zombies dressed up with their their face bandages and big jackets and gloves sitting in the back of the truck the back of the truck is filled with firearms of every description i mean there's hunting rifles shotguns Boxes of ammunition all over the place in the back of the truck and tied up on the floor of the truck are two humans. who are just bound and gagged and hog And the two zombies look at Blair and he looks at them and the zombies go, it's him again. <laughs> <laughs> he leaps and drops out of the truck, rolls under the truck. The zombies start shooting their guns off because now they've got guns. Now it's zombies with guns and they start blazing away at the sides of the truck. And Blair's like, you know, laying under the truck. He pulls out, a knife or something. He punches a hole, cuts the fuel lines, uh, lights the fuel on fire, jump, rolls out from under the truck. Truck bursts into flames. Zombies jump out of the truck, clearly not liking fire. Blair leaps back into the truck, grabs the two hostages by the, basically by their crotch in the back of their neck, and throws them face first out of the burning truck onto the pavement so they won't be in the exploded. then leaps out of the truck before it explodes, all the ammo that's going off in it. Um, a firefight ensues with the zombies, manages to kill one. The others run off. We get there, you know, the, 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 the truck's on fire. You know, uh, the only thing, Blair managed to grab a, a satchel out of the front seat of the truck before it burned up. And we're looking at the satchel, and the satchel is filled with maps of Europe. And it's got a red line following how to get from Zaragoza through southern France to Rome. And we're like, oh my God, the zombies are going after the Pope.
0: Because really that's what zombie templars Yeah,
1: do. I mean it, it, well, after all, he destroyed the order, but the Pope, you know It's uh, payback. <laughs> yeah, it's payback, you know. Um maybe they're out to get the Pope for dissolving the order or something. I don't know. Uh, maybe there's some item that was in the castle that they were gonna use as part of their resurrection. That's in that's in Rome, you know. That the the Templars, who Caesar took that back, and they can't become, you know, maybe this this zombie thing is an intermediate stage, and if they just get, you know, the missing item, they can be resurrected as, you know, real humans again, you know.
0: Right.
1: Uh, We don't know, but the zombies are going to Rome, and we're going to have to follow them. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons why those those characters can never, ever, ever go back to Italy. (laughs) <laughs> ever again because the things that happened in italy were even worse but um you know it was it, the going to rome part he wants to john felt that what happened in rome was so over the top it was hilarious it was one of the best games ever really um blair managed to blow his pants off using dynamite on two separate occasions um which was hilarious i mean um threw dynamite at the Templars and then threw himself flat facing away from the dynamite thinking, you know, he'd be less hurt by the concussion, but the blast wave basically filled his pants with air and blew the seams out all the way up to the belt line. So he's running around for the rest of the scenario with these, these no pants on just these, this belt holding these floppy bits of pants on. Um, And, you know, we have this horrible shootout with the Templars uh, out front of the Pope's summer residence. The bomb went off awful close to the Pope Mobile. We're like, okay, we managed to escape the Templars. And we're like, you know, every Italian cop on the planet's going to be here in about five minutes. And if any of us are caught with guns, we're going to jail forever. You know, there's no doubt. So we had to do the thing that player characters never want to do. We threw our guns in a ditch, every single gun, and had to walk out of there. You know, naked, essentially. Right. Fortunately, we found some pants for Blair, but um, um, they were from a guy who was too small for him. So he had to walk out of there with pants that were a size or two too small for him. And that wasn't it was a diff, didn't match the suit. So it wasn't suspicious at all. Um, but we had to throw our guns in a ditch and walk out of there. And sure enough, the Italian, every Italian, we got stopped by Italian cops three, four times trying to get out of the area. And, you know, we're just all tourists. Uh, that's all just tourists, you know, coming through here, you know, and not assassins trying to kill the Pope, not at all, not us. And, you know, managed to escape that. And it just goes downhill from there even more. But, um, yeah, uh, we, it, it was really incredibly fun. And one of the best things about Rome was, we get to Rome, and we're like, okay, how hard is it going to be to find a dozen or guys with bandaged faces, right? I mean, these guys are going to stand out like sore thumbs, you know? All we have to do is go down to Vatican City, hang around, pick them out, and then we follow them back to their evil lair, and we set fire to the lair while they're in it, you know, and problem solved, right? Uh, it's set, the scenario set in 1920, so... Every crippled or wounded veteran of World War I has showed up, who's a Catholic, has showed up in the, in the Vatican to have the Pope bless their wounds. So we get to the Vatican, and it is just filled with guys with bandaged faces or guys wearing those prosthetic face masks that they had in World War I for guys who'd had their mandibles shot off or horrible disfigure so it's just filled with guys wrapped in bandages and it was just oh my god just one thing after another um yeah the zombies the zombies were always about a step ahead of us and it was just terribly embarrassing to be to be uh you know just so completely outmaneuvered by medieval screwheads at every turn <laughs> it really was it was a fabulous scenario but the stuff that happened and he, he, John just didn't like the the, the the tempo of what went on in, in Rome um, and uh, wants to replay that back section and give the Templars a goal that's uh, actually in um, France, probably in um, uh, I can't remember there was a, the, the like goal is going to be somewhere else. it probably be Avion where the Pope was yeah. held uh, the, 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 the Babylonian captivity. Right. Um, I want this scenario desperately to see the light of day. Um, I thought the stuff in Rome was amazing. Um, uh, you know, I I thought the stuff in Rome was absolutely amazing. Um, but, uh, and it was one of the, just, you know, most hilarious, entertaining games I've been in, in a long time. Um, you know, all the way, oh yeah, all (laughs) the way, all the way down from trying to throw dynamite at the, at the, you know, having, having, um, disabled the zombies truck that they're in, they were chasing us in. Um, Having disabled their truck, we turn the car on, drive back, light a bundle of like seven or eight sticks of dynamite, throw it out the window at the truck, you know, roll this perfect roll. The dynamite lands right next to the truck, blow the drive roll, run into the truck. (laughs) So we're stopped right next to the dynamite. I'm like, well, that's it for these characters. I guess. (laughs) We're right there at the run into the truck. Completely stopped. The truck is surrounded by zombie templars, and there's a big pile of dynamite. Ouch! And we're like, well, that's it for us. Blair leaps out of the truck. He's got nothing better to do, <laughs> or leaps out of our car, jumps onto the dynamite, jerks the fuse out of the out of the the, the detonator in the dynamite makes his decks roll. It's like make your decks times one, you know. Wow. And it makes his decks times one roll. And then has to jump back into the truck while the all the Templars are piling onto the car. And then they were driving with Templars holding onto the vehicle, trying to stick, you know, their pistols to the window and, and firing wildly. And yeah. Um just for that alone, I mean it was just so, you know, uh Hollywood crazy. At the same time we, you know, the our keeper was not giving us any breaks as far as the die rolls, you know? We were not playing with cinematic rules, but we managed to have some truly (laughs) over-the-top cinematic things happen. You know, it was absolutely one of my favorite times ever playing Call of Cthulhu. And it didn't, and we didn't have any, um, we didn't have any, uh, uh, mythos. I mean, it wasn't, uh, there were no Mego, Dark, Young, or Deep Ones, or that stuff. It was, it was just these um, these uh, sort of sorcerous alchemical um, adepts who had managed to preserve themselves through the centuries uh, to be a kind of a kind of revenant, and uh, it was really and it was just it was just a really great game because again I, I'm going on forever but it, uh, the zombies broke all the zombie rules, uh, which made it fascinating game.
0: Yeah, no yeah. zombies using the Dewey Decimal system. Well, that was the weird. worst. Yeah. Because
1: that meant they meant they were smarter than I am because I can't use the Dewey Decimal system. <laughs> um,
0: so uh, it sounds like you know the Unspeakable Oath will have uh, no lack of. Extra We've got plenty of
1: old articles that are sitting around ready to go. Um, a few scenarios that had previously been submitted have ended up right. on Yog Sathoth as free downloads, so I don't think there's any point in reprinting them and asking people to pay for them if
0: they get right, them on. Yog well, free. Well, you're also okay. accepting new submissions too.
1: Absolutely,
0: yes. Um, so go to
1: the website. Go to the Unspeakable Oath website, which I will now give you the address for, uh, so that you can um, go to the website.
0: I think it's the unspeakableoath.com, isn't it?
1: It's that simple. But let's just make sure. Yes, it's the unspeakableoath.com.
0: I'll put the, oh, uh, uh, the URL in the uh, show notes, obviously. So. Oops. Um, so. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, uh, they're, they're, you know, everyone's gonna be looking forward to that. Um, but Pagan um, is also having uh, something coming out. Are you gonna have uh, uh, Bumps in the Night's uh, some preview material for those people lucky enough to go to Gen Con this year? Isn't that right? Yeah.
1: We're going to start off by showing it at Gen Con. We're going to have, uh, at this point, it looks like the book is going to be, if the last edits come back, yeah. as I've just sent off the last edits to our editor. If the last edits come back, cool. Uh, then uh, we can, you know, we're, going to, we're probably, it'll be, even if the last edits aren't perfect, we're going to print out a couple of PDFs of the, of the book, um, print them out and bind them, and uh, show them at Gen Con to show, okay, this book is done. All we need now is our print budget. You know, and that's not going to happen right now because all of our money is tied up in Gen Con. But we're going to get some of our cash back out of that. And we're going to start offering the book available for, um, uh, you know, pre-order. Um, or perhaps we'll do it as a ransom. Uh, but if you order it, uh, you'll be getting the PDF right off the bat.
0: Uh, uh, and we'll, uh, tell us a little about a. Uh, um,
1: bumps, bumps is just going to so. be a, a collection of uh, five non-mythos scenarios. Um, they're all, there's, a an Indian folklore monster. There's, um, uh, zombies. Cause of you course. can't get enough zombies. Right. Uh, there's a cult, but it's not a, it's not a mythos cult, but it's a cult worshiping some, uh, mythological deity who sucks. Uh, who's no fun to be around. Um, there's a poltergeist ghost story. uh, Actually, there's two, and there's two ghost stories. There's two poltergeist ghost stories. One is a haunted house, and one is a haunted neighborhood. Um, and, interesting. Uh, so they those are, the, those are the kind of scenarios that you're going to get in this thing. Um, they're all set in the classic era, although very few of them uh, would take a lot of work to adapt to modern times. Um, certainly not the haunted neighborhood, the haunted house. Uh, that would be no problem. Um, even the... Um, even the uh, 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 Indian folklore one, this could be adapted to almost any time period, even though they are set in the twenties, 20s twenties and thirties. 20s
0: and right, right. Yeah, the haunted neighborhood—that's a pretty—it's novel enough of an idea that I'd be interested.
1: Uh, well, in you it. know, John came up with the idea. John, the crow who wrote it, came up with the idea on his own. Um, he didn't. Um, John
0: Tynes or <laughs> John crow.
1: crow? John okay. Crow, the guy who wrote uh, *Walker in the Wastes* and okay. uh, *Rump of Shadows*. Um, and uh, most of the scenarios that are in um, – uh, uh, some of the scenarios that are in Mysteries of Mesoamerica, he wrote two of those, uh, two of the scenarios in that, and uh, Brian Appleton wrote the other two scenarios that are in Mysteries of Mesoamerica. Uh, John's one of our most prolific writers, and I would say he came up with the idea of the the ghost not sticking to the house long before The Grudge came out. Um, that was sort of the movie that broke the get out of the house and it solves the ghost problem. Mm. You know, where no, there's just not, a, there's no amount of mileage you can put between you and the problem. Once you've, once you, once it's, you've got its attention.
0: That is true. The grudge ghost is pretty persistent. Uh,
1: <laughs> pretty persistent. That's one way of putting it. Um,
0: <laughs> um, Understated. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, but um, this is uh, not quite the same thing, uh, but it is a, it is a ghost that doesn't uh, obey the laws that we think of for ghost stories. Um
0: Kind of like and, the uh, Templar zombies, don't it? Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: I, I've always enjoyed, John always has a, takes a crack at sort of um, breaking the rules on some of our critters. Um, although he's also just a, a, a fanatic about finding critters from folklore that no one's ever heard of before mm. and using them. We uh, had an amazing scenario called... Um, uh, which we're hoping to publish in a, in a, in a collection called um, Mysteries of uh, Mesopotamia. We've done the Mysteries of Mesoamerica. We're putting together scenarios for Mesopotamia now because um, we just, oddly enough, ended up with a bunch of scenarios set in Iraq. Um, one of them was going to be for the World War One book, but it, 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 it does so well in the Mesopotamia thing. It should really be included in that book. But he found a, an Arabic folklore monster, um, which I – uh, I'll just call. I'll just say that the Udar. If anyone can find the Udar uh, in 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 you know uh, some uh, book on folklore, they're, then they're welcome to know what they are. But um, yeah, the U- Udar were the are the are the stars of a scenario called a fate worse than death, and um, that's pretty much literally that would be. Yeah, I
0: <laughs> no spoilers, um, but.
1: I'm I'm not going to give any spoilers except to say that, um, uh, I ended up losing, I ended up having to make sand rolls while performing first aid on people who had been victims of the UDAR. Wow. So that was, that was a new one for me. That was, that was a new one for any character I've ever had. So yeah, the UDAR were particularly nasty and, um, So, yeah, he's done a really good job at, like I said, sussing out uh, folklore creatures that no one's ever heard of before and uh, using them there. Um, You know, and and, uh, the more of that, the better because, you know, there's a gets to a point where it goes, oh, it's a dark young. I know what to do in this situation. Even if my character doesn't, um, there's a certain player knowledge that always bleeds through. Yeah. You find something new, you know, (laughs) uh, it's new. And uh, there's, you know,. you get to find out how the monster works when it eats you right or one of your companions you know you realize you, everybody's wearing a red shirt
0: you know There's, <laughs> but, there is uh, no plot immunity uh, yeah no
1: there is no plot immunity um but uh, that's uh, we're hoping that we can maybe if we get enough uh, uh pruders done uh, we could get this thing out by christmas time uh okay. bumps in the night uh, after that i'm hoping we can concentrate on uh Mysteries of the Old West, and um, after that, uh, Horrors of War, which is the, the World of One scenarios that you've gotten to play in are all uh, scheduled to be in Horrors of War.
0: Great. Um, now, there's uh, uh, one last uh, topic I'd like to go over. Uh, it doesn't have to – it's um, one of uh, the RPPR players, uh, Aaron, is going to be running Call of Cthulhu at Gen Con this year, and he's never – run call of cthulhu before he's never been a real strong horror player we're we're gonna have him run a few games beforehand but uh what advice do you have for someone who hasn't run call of cthulhu and isn't very well i mean he i mean he's aware of what cthulhu is everything but i mean what is your advice for new call of cthulhu gms
1: well yeah i i guess that's a tough one um uh I would say that uh, one of the things to remember at all times, I guess, is that um, is you have to, if you're actually looking to scare the players, I think the scariest thing that the players are going to deal with in that game is probably the dice. The dice are the thing that they're going to be scared of. Because the dice are the moment that things can go. Once you pick up a pair of dice and roll it through, that's when everything can go horribly pear-shaped. Mm. You know, you can blow the sand roll. You can miss the jump roll. You can miss the you know uh, uh, parachute check. Parachute or fire pistol or climber. any number of things can go wrong. You know, and it it and it, I I let people fudge rules based on you know precautions that they actually say they're going to take. If someone says they're going to climb up over this fence, it's 12 feet tall or whatever. And if they say, well, I'm going to climb on my buddy's shoulders first or something, you know, we'll give them all kinds of benefits because I don't want the game to get bogged down because somebody broke their leg getting over the fence. Um, As long as they're smart about it, they're stupid. I can't help them. You know, if somebody's plan for getting over the fence is the pole vault. And I'm like, do you, have you ever pole vaulted before? Like, no, but I'm going to try it. Okay. Get a stick, you know, and make a luck roll to see if the stick's long enough and then make a dex roll times one, you know, to see if you get your first ever pole vault to get over the barbed wire topped razor wire topped fence. You know, there's all kinds of bad player plans, you know, that are always way too intricate and way too convoluted and that will get them into trouble. And as far as, you know, and there's no way to defend against that, but I, I, I would. Try and make sure that the players understand they should fear the dice. And the only way you can do that, unfortunately, is to let the dice hurt them. Um, uh, that's, I mean, people have played Call of Cthulhu and they're players. They've played it before. They're just going to naturally have a fear of the dice. Where they're saying what they're doing and where they're going and what they're looking into. They have some control over the situation. The moment that they have the dice have to come out to do something, um, that's when they can feel that control slipping away. <clears throat> and perhaps that's the thing that's scariest about Call of Cthulhu is your utter lack of control uh, in some situations. Um, you're never going to be, I mean, he has to realize that, you know, that make the players realize as well that, You know, you only have to get shot once to be done in this game, you know. That's true. Um, You're never going to be 10th level. Um, uh, You're never, it's, yeah, your skills can go up, but, you know, you're always going to be a fragile meat sack uh, that, you know, can be horribly mutilated. Um, In a con game, I hate to say it, but in a con game setting, he might as well start murdering people pretty quickly. I mean, um, if it's just going to be a quick four-hour one-off, uh, you know, showing how the monster works on a player is not a terrible thing to do. Um, I haven't done that to players because uh, in the games that I've run, because I mean, okay, Ross, you did fall off the zeppelin. I did, but that was you know that again that was the and that was the dice yeah. screwing you. I mean, you had like three rolls to not fall off the zepp, and you you fumbled every one of them. Yeah, so off the zap you went. Um, uh, but normally I'm not, you know, don't want to um, uh, murder players who are experienced players right off the bat to show how the monster works. Um, if people have never played Call of Cthulhu before and they're playing it, you know, it's different. And you know, when you say how do you, how do you, what advice do you give to players playing Call of Cthulhu versus what advice do you give to a keeper? I mean, the players' advice would be easier. For me to you know to encapsulate because you just you know have to lead with your brain and you know you're not going to hit it with your axe you know if you're hitting anything with your axe things have gone things have gone bad yeah. you know if you're in a firefight if, you know in a gun battle you you have failed in your planning I mean uh, the last great firefight we were in in Kalakathilu was we were playing a scenario here where we tracked the sorceress to her cabin in the woods we waited outside in the woods until this is 1920s until she had to go to the bathroom and when she went to the outhouse we attacked her in the outhouse while her pants were under ankles (laughs) we had while we had shotguns all right why because we weren't taking any chances We weren't taking any chances and we beat her with the rifle butts. And then we handcuffed her behind her back and we're dragging her out. And in the middle of her dragging her out, captured alive, she starts bellowing out a spell. We don't know what it is. We don't know if it's going to work. We have no idea. But she starts going, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think I can still hold on. I'm still thinking I can maybe take her alive. So I think, well, I'll punch her and knock her out. And so I start punching her other player carri- other NPCs and player characters who know what this means just started shooting her. So event- essentially four player characters end up standing around this handcuffed woman on the ground with her pants around her ankles, just firing round after round from shotguns into her. That was our big brave gun battle <laughs> was executing a handcuffed woman with her pants down. Um, and I'm sorry, if you're playing Call of Cthulhu, that's the way to go. <laughs> You know, you've got to be, there's no taking chances in this game. Um, If things are, you know, if you're taking a desperate chance, it's because, well, you let things get desperate. Um, As far as the keeper goes, advice to the keeper, um, uh, that's really tough. I, uh, as far as, you know, advice about what, how to approach the game, how to, Uh, how to maintain the mood. I mean, it just depends on what kind of game he wants to have. He wants to have a more pulpy two fisted uh, game. That's fine. If he wants to have a more creepy game, it's a, it's a different kind of approach. I guess the main thing is going to have to determine what kind of game he's running. First off, Mm. Uh Well what, what kind of uh, scenarios he wants to run? Uh,
0: he's going to be running uh, one of uh, uh, Tom's World War II scenarios. I think the okay. uh, Divine Fire, the one we uh, put on the AP
1: far some. pulpier, far yeah. pulpier than, yeah, yeah. Uh, than than the creep one. Um, yeah. You know, well, geez, the, the first thing she should be doing, obviously, listen to Tom's actual play. Um, yeah. Tom did a great job running those running those games. Um, uh, the uh, the ghoul through the steel door with the food slot was one of the just absolute best parts of that and the whole talking to the ghoul through the door was just amazing um tom accomplished a lot creating the mood in that situation without having to show anything just just a freaking you know blank door with a voice coming out through the food slot in it you know yeah uh that was really good um as far as you know uh a game like that um uh, I would, you know, in a con situation, and this is something that I need to improve in my own games. It's just uh, particularly if you're doing a, a recorded session, uh, anything where time is of the essence. If you're doing a recorded session or you're doing a, a con game, don't let the rules get in the way of moving the story along uh, oh. under any circumstances. We, we rolled way too many hit locations when you were mowing down deep ones with that, <laughs> max that. um yeah. You know, uh, we needed to just to you go, know, okay, everyone opens fire, you know, give me some general rolls um and uh you know i could have determined that you know it, you know it was just really a question of how many how many deep ones were going to go over the side and how many of them was, was frank going to go bavarian trout fishing with his hand grenades chasing them with grenades in the water you know before you finish them off um it wasn't really like anyone was going to escape from that situation you had a freaking firing squad uh aimed at a lifeboat you know um but um uh You know, don't let the rules get in the way of of moving the story forward. Uh, If a player barks and says, but wait, you know, I get, you know, for things like, you know, how many attacks per round somebody gets when his ass is on the line, feel free to slow down and give him every break the rules allow for. But otherwise, just keep keep things moving forward as best you can. Um, Even in a con game, though, uh, or a recorded game, don't ever let the players don't don't ever let the players get the sense they're on a railroad um, you know I, I don't like railroaded games it just move from one scene to another just presenting the scenes in order here's a scene what do you do okay here's the next scene well how do we get there do we get any decisions as far as which scene we get to no it's the scene I have prepared so that's the scene you're gonna see um, try and avoid that um, try or at least Try and avoid letting them know that that's what's going on. Right, right. You know, there's a lot of them that are just going to be set up that way, but if there's some way you can finesse it so it doesn't look like a, just one scene lined up after another, that um, so they have a choice and they have control over their game. Um, I think that they, I think they're going to be more nervous about having choices than they are about having no choices. Yeah. If they have no choice in the situation, then it's just going to turn out however it turns out because the keeper decided it's going to be that way, and you're just along for the ride, whether it's an enjoy- enjoyable ride or not. But if you have choices, that means you can foobar the scenario. You know, you can – there might have been a way out, but you screwed it up, you know. Uh, and, and I think that would keep the players even more nervous knowing that they have more choice involved in the scenario. mm
0: mm-hmm. Um, just to give you an idea, um, Aaron, I don't know, did you listen to uh, The Call of Cthulhu Room B12? Uh, that was a nineteen twenty scenario you put on the AP side.
1: I have not heard B12 yet. I just got done listening to uh, Down in the Bayou and uh, Convergence. Okay. And uh, But um, B12 – no, wait a minute. Yeah, I remember B-12. B-12 was the... Uh, that was when Tom, Tom ran.
0: Yes. And, and that's uh, right.
1: Yes, I liked I that one. was the
0: player. Uh, Aaron was the player who gave the uh, suspect his uh, business card. Yeah. Uh, so, um, that's give you an idea of Aaron's. Uh, well, so- here's
1: the... Uh, that's fine, giving him yeah. his business card. I don't think that's a problem at all if, you're, if your character has no experience with... Right. ...being an investigator. Um, you know, it... Uh, um, but you know, if you get, ex- uh, but, but, but when we are, when we're playing experienced characters, whenever we're doing an investigation, unless we're, you know, we, we tend to go all Jim Rockford on them and just, you know, we show yeah. up to ask questions. We never show up as ourselves. Yeah. We always have a cover story of who we are and why we're there. so that if it ever comes back on us, it'll bite somebody else and not us. Unlike, Oh, God, who was uh, the, uh, the Bradford players playing Masks of Narlathotep, where I'm trying to listen to the game, but I'm just I'm grinding my teeth listening to them go to the Juju House in New York and going, hi, we're Bob and Smith and Harry and Fred, and we're investigating the death of our good friend Jackson Elias. He seemed to think there was a horrible world-spanning cult uh, out there that was causing problems. You got any of that around here? No. Oh, you don't, huh? Well, um, we're staying at this hotel and this is our address, and if you hear anything about a giant horrible world spanning cult, you'll let us know. Of course we will. You know, and, and <laughs> they just go right to the cultists over and over again and tell them everything about themselves. Not only do they tell them everything about themselves, in an attempt to prompt an answer, they keep giving the cultists more and more information about what they've learned so far. You know, like if someone up there say well, you know, we've heard that this cult of the bloody tongue is from uh, the Congo. You're from the Congo, aren't you? Yes. And they're like, ah, I see. And, well, it, it, it apparently it migrated to Egypt. It has a connection to the, the cult of the Black Pharaoh. Does it really? You know, and they just kept providing information, hoping that it would engender a response from the, uh, from the guy in the Juju house, I think they do the same thing to Edward Gavigan when they get to the Penhue Foundation. <laughs> Where they tell the cultists not only that they're on the cultist trail, but they also fill in every let the cultists know everything they've learned up to this point. I <laughs> <laughs> <They> just <laughs> share all this information and I'm just like, oh, you guys are going to have a freaking hunting horror in your hotel room. Midnight, you know <laughs> you're gonna have no one to blame but yourselves i mean there should be a human wave of guys in robes and knives just running up the stairs to your hotel room tonight <laughs> oh man
0: um so yeah that, that that that's uh a little closer to i mean aaron i don't think is uh, is that bad but you know he is uh um not used to playing uh,
1: guileless is that the word you're looking yeah for?
0: guileless there we go um he, uh, so it, it's sort of a challenge. So we're going to be, uh, he's going to be running games for us, uh, uh, during July to try. He's and- the
1: keeper. So you will now have a guileless keeper.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I think maybe that'll be to your advantage exactly. as opposed to a crafty keeper or, uh, or worse, um, uh, keeper with no inflection. John Crow, uh, has, a, has, a, has perhaps one of the greatest poker faces in gaming history. Uh, I cannot get a read on him ever when we're playing a game. There's no way to tell whether he's – we're on the right track, on the wrong track, whether we've done something that's amused him, you know, or we've done something that's confounded his scenario. We can never tell because he just (laughs) never cracks. He never, ever cracks. And so (laughs) we've we've had games where we've wandered around for two four-hour sessions, you know, on two different weeks trying to find the scenario. (laughs) Because <laughs> we've lost the scenario, and John will not give us any help. He will not help us out if we've screwed it up, you know, wow. and we're wandering off in the wrong direction. That's pretty old school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when you find, – I'll just say, though, when you finally actually, you know, get your shit together and, and make those scenario, scenarios work, um, it is – uh, incredibly rewarding. You feel like you've actually accomplished something because mm. it's it's um, it's so dense and it's so hard to penetrate what's going on. And again, he he provides no clues. I mean, I I I laugh out loud and I emote and stuff. So you know, yeah. sort of the keeper. But no, not that guy. Jesus.
0: Can call Kazulu an expert mode then.
1: <laughs> expert with realism.
0: Yes, exactly. That
1: guy lets the dice not only does he let the dice fall where they may. He rolls them in front of you.
0: Mm, that's the worst, or that's the best. So there's emotion. no
1: way to get out of it. Exactly. When the pull an 0-1 and they to shoot you, it's like, it's an 0-1. Yeah,
0: like I did with the uh, Down in the Bayou game, uh, with the ghoul with the AK-47. Um, yep,
1: an one is an 0-1.
0: Yep. Um, well, I think that's about um, all but I it, had, so. We've
1: uh, been on, this has been two hours of this We've we're yeah. gonna have to edit this down to a more reasonable format. I oh,
0: think. I think the people will like it uh, as it is, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Because um, there's no there's no limitations for podcasting. But um, I appreciate you having me on the show, and uh, I'll be seeing you at GenCon, waiting for the next uh, World One scenario. Which which uh, have you have you finalized which one it's going to be? Well,
1: there's a couple of different ones that I could go. With. John John did one set in the um, in uh, German Cameroon, mm-hmm. where you can play Belgians and in African uh, troops. For Naskari troops mm-hmm. in uh, in Cameroon, that one's a real simple one to run. I actually adapted it as a Delta Green scenario, and it worked really, really well. Mm. Uh, it doesn't need to be play tested. Um, there's a scenario set in the South Pacific, uh, which began as a World War One scenario, but may actually end up being the opening chapter of a Delta Green campaign that would cross multiple um, decades. Nice. And, uh, well, you know, you'd, and, and the idea being is that you'd play multiple scenarios and in the last scenarios, you would take all the information that you learned in the previous scenarios and it would be like the file for you know, that you as Delta Green access, agents have access to. If the characters refuse to look in the hole or refuse to explore or refuse to do anything, then the guys, when you get to the present, it's like, well, gee, you know, uh, if, you know, you, you didn't do any investigation in the past, so your characters in the present have nothing to work with. Um, you know, your, your investigation is going to be hamstrung, you know, and if players knew they were only going to be playing one shots in the past, um, you know, they, they, would run their characters like, like kamikaze pilots. You right. Know? Right. They wouldn't care what happened to them as long as they learned something that their character in the future can, can use. Um, so I'm going to try and avoid setting up that kind of situation um, uh, with the, with the campaign in some way. But um, at the same time, um be able to sit, do something where you will what the, the, the clues that bring you to your case are things that are learned by people in the past and then the players you know incorporate them into reports that are passed on to their futures you know their future characters. Um, it set it off as a World War One campaign idea or World One scenario. But I think it's going to work better as part of a, a an actual Delta Green campaign. It's uh, something I've been kicking around for a while. I haven't had any Delta Green campaign ideas in a long time, and I actually thought of this originally thought of this as a twenties and thirties campaign. But I realized that uh, the 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 material I was working with could stretch over the entire period. So the idea would be is you know I think it'll work best as a as a kind of multi-generational um, campaign where you wouldn't play the same characters the whole way through. Uh, although you could, I mean, there'd be enough time between some of the scenarios. You could bring certain people back right. if you really wanted to, which I think would be awesome. If the players get to meet their, their septuagenarian selves, you know, <laughs> who were 20 years old in the first scenario and are now 75. And in the rest of going, you, you kids aren't going back to that Island. That's <laughs> fucked up. Don't go back there. Um, but uh, that would be hilarious. Uh, that would actually be really hilarious to make that work. Yeah. Um, but uh, the armored train scenario that you guys were, I'd mentioned to you guys before, that is definitely, a, it's either a world or a one scenario or it's a kickoff for mysteries of Manchuria because the way it turned out, it was, uh, it ends up being uh, played mostly in Manchuria on the Chinese Southern uh, and the Chinese Eastern rail lines, which are these Russian rail lines that ran through Manchuria Um, they were kind of like extraterritoriality. It was like the Panama Canal, you know, it was Russian territory in Manchuria Mm -hmm. because they, you know, forced it on them when China was particularly weak in uh, in the 19th century. Um, that scenario could be run as well. I haven't really come up with a a conclusion. What I'm going to do, likely as not, is put together uh, a big pile of scenarios, um, there's even an airborne scenario. There's even a, a World War One fighter pilot scenario that can be played. Nice. And I'll just put together a big pile of scenarios with the. And I have pre generated characters for all these at this point. And I'll just, you know, bring them in and go, who wants to play what? You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I can adapt very quickly to whatever scenario one wants to do. Um, and if anyone's, you know, I, I, I've already heard from a couple people who are going to uh, be there now. Again,. Uh, Uh, Hans Reiner, uh, our, our, Mm -hmm. our token German will probably be back. Uh, Frank Fry may be back. Um, and, but there are other games being run, so I'm not sure how much we're going to get to do and how big a game. I have to to choose something that's going to be relatively bite-sized and the, um, the Congo one and the uh, airplane one are very bite-sized and so is the South Pacific one. Um, since it's been sort of restructured. Uh, as long as we don't get off topic, ha ha ha, (laughs) uh, that, that one could be done in four hours, uh, four or five hours, I think. uh, in one session, um, uh, it'll still feel a little incomplete because it is the kickoff for a scenario for a campaign, but as a chapter, it can be, it can be completed. Right. we'll, we'll, we'll we'll pick something out. Um, you know, there's plenty of stuff that needs to be play tested and I also could just bring some stuff from, you know, bumps in the night, you know, that's uh, true. Uh, Bumps in the Night's got play. I mean, nothing need to be play tested, but it can be played. Um there's still some stuff from uh, uh, Mysteries of Mesoamerica. I'm presuming you've read everything in Mysteries of Mesoamerica. I have. Yeah, dirty bastard. Well then I couldn't <laughs> inflict anything on that unless I changed the scenario. Ha,
0: ha, you ha, could. Ha. Um,
1: that's always entertaining. Yep. Um, but um, uh, so yeah, something from uh, something from Bumps in the Night would probably be best. Um, just to, uh, because we like it, got five good scenarios. Um, right. And uh, uh, any one of them, they're all relatively small, manageable scenarios. All of them can be very easily done during the course of uh, uh, a four hour game session at a con.
0: Okay. Well, I, whatever whatever we decide to run, I'll be uh, looking forward to it. So,
1: okay, um, bringing Tom with you again?
0: Uh, yeah, and Aaron. And so.
1: you know, you never you're never gonna get you never get out of these things if Tom doesn't help. I mean, Tom yeah. killed the Serpent Man. Yeah, Tom. True. Tom. Tom provoked the mutiny. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, if you don't bring Tom with you, you're probably not gonna make it. No,
0: no, uh, obviously. <laughs>
1: You're just gonna fall off the zeppelin again. <laughs> that
0: is true. Um, all right. Well, I look forward to dying or uh, succeeding in uh, one way or the other.
1: Uh, no, I, yeah. I, I got to tell you, I was uh, I when we were. There were so many people in that game, um, that zeppelin game. When I handed a replacement character to you, it was the um, it was the radio operator. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I my original intention for the radio operator just a fuck things up even more because he's he's sitting in in a a soundproof cabin on the bridge of the zeppelin with its own door right and it has an exterior wall and a window in it i was going to have the because he's in an enclosed room i was going to have the the star vampire pull the wall open and grab the radio operator and eat him and just pull him out of the wall you know and jerk half the radio out with him, you know, just to freak everybody out. Oh, my God, we don't have any radio anymore, you know. <laughs> um, but the idea of having you fall off, when you, once you fell off the top of the Zeppelin, I just couldn't turn around and kill you. <laughs> right? Here's your replacement character and your dead character. <laughs> that just seemed unnecessarily cruel at the time. But, you know, that's because I didn't know you. Yeah. Now that I know you better, yes, I would absolutely be <laughs> no about any- hitting <laughs> you character and then two <laughs> seconds later go well the wall just explodes and these horrible talents bite into your flesh what do you do well
0: that that is uh, what I did to Aaron I, I have killed him twice in two se- call of Cthulhu scenarios um, the the well sacrifices that are well, ran well, last that year. was
1: but that was the- that was him that was Aaron him. Aaron, yeah. Aaron if you're listening to this <laughs> you got killed by going into the into there into the, into the, the cave and shooting at the bats <laughs> why did you think it would go differently if you went to the cave again and shot at the bats. Uh, I mean, that was it was it was it. What did Einstein say? Doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result.
0: Um. Well, to be fair, I, I also uh, um, last October I ran a, a scenario from Worlds of Cthulhu. It was a 1920s haunted house scenario, um, and I can't remember the title of it. But Aaron got killed in it, and uh, the house, the spirit that possesses the house, can reanimate dead bodies. And, oh, and so basically, but to give Aaron something to do, because he got killed early on, uh, I let him control, play the part of the spirit and try and set up an ambush to get rid of the remaining two players who are hiding up in the attic. So they're like three zombies, you know, versus the two players. And the first round, when the players decide to make the run for it, is the player with the hunting rifle rolls like an ought two on his attack roll against, you know, called shot to the head on Aaron's uh, zombies.
1: Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's just a matter of luck. (laughs) Going down into the cave with a Tommy gun was not a matter of luck. Uh, Okay, except, you know... His mother was unlucky to have had such a stupid son. I mean that's the only luck involved there.
0: Oh, I will I will direct him to uh, listen to this interview for advice.
1: Great. So. Now, now I've made a now I've made a friend by calling him stupid on National Podcast, uh-huh. The
0: Interwebs. Yes, the Interwebs. Uh- the
1: Interwebs. I'm, you know, they don't do that. I will say this though, he's still I'm he is still not as guileless as Paul of Cthulhu over on uh, the Bradford players uh, every time I listen to Paul uh, from uh, from Com playing a game he just it's it's' <laughs> It's like watching Wiley E. Coyote uh, trying to investigate the mythos. It's, you know, you're seeing him set this stuff up and, you know, strapping the rocket to his back with the roller skates, you know, and the net with the, you know, and holding the stick with the net at the end. And you just know it's not going to work out, you know, you know, place the bird seed right in the big target spot and then get the piano and the winch. And, you know, I, ugh, Paul, 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 come on. You know, he rolls up a lot of characters. He just, that's all I'm saying. He rolls up a lot of characters. Apparently the sting of having to roll up a character is, is gone for him. So he thinks nothing of it. So yeah. any hair-brain scheme will do.
0: Gotcha. Um, all right. Well, I think that th- with that, uh, 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 I think we will uh, conclude the interview.
1: And, oh God, please. <laughs>
0: um, I uh, and I'll be seeing you at Gen Con, So yes, so Ross from Role We interviewing Adam Scott Glancy, pagan publishing. We'll talk be
1: seeing to you. you.